was talking to Mayo during his, I don't think it was during his interview, but just when I was up there, he's like, yeah, one of the tactics I can use to determine like who I'm not going to be compatible friends with is people that quote Anchorman and Dodgeball. If they quote it, you will or will not be Well, he will not be friends with them. Oh, that's funny. Damn, that shit's fucked up. I was hanging out, with, not hanging out, I was working with these guys at, um, at this company, and there were like three of them. We were doing this volunteer day. We were pulling weeds up behind this like Fisher house, it's like a Ronald McDonald house for vets. Mm-hmm. And the three of them just were like, all right, movie quotes, go. <laughs> and they went back and forth for, you know, I kid you not, for 15, 20 minutes. And they were would quote like Anchorman. Uh, I can't do that shit. My mind Dodge, doesn't work like was that. Was the dodgeball one with Ben Stiller? Dodgeball. Meet the Fire. They were just quoting like all these, all these, all you know, these comedies. all these comedy movies. It was like comedy greatest hits. And each one of them knew like they could they could quote it, and the other guys would go, "Oh, uh, old school, old school. Love that scene. That's my boy. You're my boy, Blue." And they're just like going off. I'm sitting there. I'm like, "What the fuck?" Like, were they cool guys? Like, they're pretty cool. I mean, they're like corporate right. US yeah. I think guys. that's exactly like what Mayo was talking about. Was referring to. It was like that kind of guy. Yeah, they're like... It's like a very standard they're guy. They're guys, guys. Yeah. Guys, guys. <laughs> guys, guys. All right, let's get into it. All right. All right, Sam Rio. Um, take us through your... Let's just start from the beginning. So give us a brief overview... That's a good fitting point. We're sitting here in Maine at the Cozy Harbor of Maine. Um, your home state. We just visited your parents yesterday. First time I've ever met them, which is kind of shocking. Give us an overview of your, essentially, life story from birth till now. Take as much or as little time as you need. <laughs> uh, let's see, 1988. 88? Was a, yeah, 1988. I guess that's right. I'm 32, right? August. Oh, yeah, and happy birthday, by the way. He turned 30. Sam turned 30 yesterday. Yesterday. That's so all very 30, 30 years and one day yeah. ago, mm-hmm. 1988, August, Sam Ryu was born and the world changed. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fitting. We're So we're at, you know, it sounds nice when you call it the Cozy Harbor. Um, I think we're behind like a fish processing plant. <laughs> yeah. <we're laughs> it smells like it at least. We're in beautiful, beautiful Portland, Maine. Uh, I can see some nice wooden sailboats out there. That was but, it. Yeah. But we are tucked in between the Marine Trade Center, which is like cranes and it's okay. very industrial, and um, some like laminate tin building, you know, settled somewhere <laughs> in between a beautiful view of a harbor and like I'll get a, a beautiful view of Keep like going. a river inlet. Um, but we picked the least scenic spot to do this, which is kind of nice. I think that's, uh, you know, sort of a... That's a highlight there. Um, no, so I was born 30, 30 plus years ago now, and uh, grew up in, for the first about 10 years or so of my life in Bar Harbor, Maine, which had a beautiful national park, Acadia National Park, uh, you know, right there. So that was like my backyard was mountains and the one sandy beach in middle the middle of Maine and called Sand Beach and for real, for real. there's one beach <laughs> with sand, sand on beach. it we called it Sand Beach <laughs> and that's like what I think of as my childhood 
And then we moved when I was in like second grade to Holden, Maine, which is where Alex joined me for, for dinner yesterday for my birthday. Lobster bake. Lobster bake, first ever for Al. Like uh, 112, 12? 12. How do you say? 112. 112 for you. For me. Um, it's not an exact Fucking count. delicious though. Lo- that was seriously my first time ever eating lobster. And clams. And what was the other thing we ate? We ate clams, mussels, right? Clams, clams mussels, and lobsters. Yeah, that was really good. And corn on the cob. Let First, me in- interject here real quick. So you grew up in Bar Harbor. I don't know if how many listeners are familiar with Maine. It's a pretty sparsely populated state to begin <laughs> with. That's Portland's the biggest city, right? Like we're in the metropolis of Maine right now? Yeah, so we're in the biggest city, and I think it's somewhere around 200,000 people right. in the city of Portland. Bar Harbor, maybe, maybe 10,000 people tourists coming through Acadia National Park a little over a million people uh-huh. a year now I think yeah and then my family moved from from Bar Harbor up to to Holden Maine which is just outside of Bangor and Bangor is 25,000 people and that's like probably one of the you know wait they moved from so you went from Bar Harbor to Holden then to Bangor Bar Harbor to Holden well, Holden and Bangor Holden's almost a suburb of Bangor okay if it so were, you never lived in if Bangor if Holden were a suburb <laughs> It would be a suburb of Bangor, but it's like rural Maine. So there's like a lot of forest outside of Bangor, and that's called Holden. Yeah, in the woods. <laughs> in the woods. We lived in the woods outside nah, of Bangor. No, dude, seriously. So we went to Sam's house. We, we we came up to Maine a few days ago, me, Sam, my younger sister, Sam's best friend from childhood, uh, Haley, and then Sam's best friend from college, a good friend of mine now, Jordan, who was a previous podcast guest. And... Um, uh, we came up a couple of days ago in Maine, spent the day in Portland, my first time up in this part of the country. And then we crashed in Camden yep, or two, in sta- Camden, Camden two days ago, which is like a real picturesque sailing town, like seems very Kennedy-esque. Yeah. Um, and then yesterday, we, for Sam's birthday, for Sam's 30th, we rolled up to Holden, where he grew up, and y'all, this, it's like, the, he, he's, Sam grew up in the fucking woods, like in the <laughs> woods. And it's, it's your dad, like... Yeah, it really does feel like a cabin in the woods. And you've already, I, I knew this prior, like you've told me this before, but it was actually even more rustic than I anticipated it was going to be. Yeah. Didn't your dad build that house like himself? Yeah, so, so actually I guess that's an interesting part of my story maybe. Let's hear it. So when we were in second grade, uh, my dad had been traveling from Bar Harbor up to Bangor uh, for work. So he was working in a hospital in Bangor, but we were living over an hour away Bar Harbor and it was crazy during like snow and ice storms in the winter so he had started looking my parents had started looking for property closer to, to the hospital in Bangor and they found this piece of land and my dad had wanted to build a house so he went and did this like you know house frame building course or whatever construction oh, course okay. and learned how to build post and beam houses so in, in our house there are these like massive wooden beams that are exposed and you can see them and they make like those looks triangular cool, yeah. joints um, so it looks kind of like a cabin, uh, but you can Google post and beam. It's like, especially for old, like New England barns and stuff, you'll see a lot of them with this this kind of construction. So my dad learned how to do that and like designed the house, like drew up blueprints and stuff, and then worked with a, a framing company and had some guys come and actually help build the frame. Uh, and then, you know, I think a plumber, you know, helped with plumbing and right. then some electrician came in. But everything inside the house, the flooring, the walls, um, you know all the little little details like light fixtures and like outlets and all that stuff 
he pretty much did himself. Right. And it was a way bigger project. Uh, it was the first house he's ever built. Oh, really? That ended up being like more <laughs> than he thought it was going to bid off a little yeah, money. Believe it, believe it or not, <laughs> it's, a, a, it's a lot to build a house. Shelter for you and your family. So by the time that my parents had sold the house that we were living at in Bar Harbor, the other house, you know, the house they're in now was not finished. Right. And it was the middle, I guess it was the maybe towards the beginning of the school year, but we had to like move up. We had right. to move out of the house that was sold. Someone was going to move into it. And we had to move to Holden. So we were, like, sleeping on mattresses in the floor of, like, what is the living room and now. But it was my sister and I. and How old were you at the time? Briefly my parents' bedroom. I was around 10. So I thought it oh, was... Oh, shit. A, so you remember this. Yeah. So I thought it was a pretty cool camping trip. Um, Little did you know, like... But it was, like, a permanent... You and your family were teetering on the verge of death. It was, like, a permanent camping trip where the campsite just kept, kept getting better and better. <laughs> slowly but surely. So you're 10, uh, your sister, your, who's your only my sibling, was... My sister's 11. 11. 12. Le- 12. 12. I don't know. She's what did you think? Like, did you, Was there any, me. like, rebellion on y'all's part? Like, Dad, what the fuck are you doing? Man, I thought it was, like, probably the coolest adventure okay. ever. Um, obviously, like, I missed... My my little kindergarten friends right. from Bar Harbor, but you seem like, like you must have been pretty delayed, ten year old kindergartner. Oh yeah, I was slow, <laughs> man. <laughs> okay, so I was probably closer to what seven or eight. Okay, going to second grade. Okay. What's that? Yeah, you choose like subtract five years from your age. So if you were seven or eight, you were in second, third grade. Okay, there's a teacher. See, I need some of those. Damn skills. right. Um, so I was seven or eight. I thought Holden was awesome. We had like this big hill. There's sort of a cliff, like a, a ledge behind our house, uh, a river or a stream. If you it felt like a river when I was small, it looks like a stream now. Um, if you like go all the way down the hill behind our house, and you saw the house, it's like on this big yeah. hill. It's beautiful. Um, I mean, it's fucking beautiful. So I had a blast when I when we first moved out. I, my dad gave me like a hatchet, and I would just go out right. and chop down trees because we had so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and Is Bar Harbor though like? Isn't Bar Harbor more of a town? Like, there's more going on there? Bar Harbor is way more of a town. Bar so Harbor there was... Way more of a I town. guess when you're 10, though, that's not that big of a deal transitioning from town to isolation. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not like... Even in Bar Harbor, I mean, we had some neighbors, but, like, I wasn't right in the town of Bar Harbor. Uh-huh. So, like, think about Camden. We stayed in, in you know, at, at my co-worker's place in Camden. Alex was up here uh, with a couple other friends. And Camden's got, like, this small, like, it's, like, a downtown area with, right. like, little shops and, like, boats on the water in the harbor. And there's, like, a school and a library and, like, right. the grocery store and a little restaurant. That's, like, Bar Harbor. Okay, I got you. But where I lived in... in You're, it's a house in the woods. Was was also kind of a house outside of town. It was, like, where we were staying. Right. So okay. there was the town. Uh, okay, so you're even There was out. the town a five-minute drive away. Right. But, you know, we didn't have as many neighbors. So you're accustomed to being a hermit. Yeah, I've been, I was born and raised a hermit. Sam Maria, born and raised a hermit. Um, Dude, what did you do when you were a kid, like for fun? Oh, I played outside every day. But by yourself? I would play with my sister when I could get her to join me. Okay. Um, which wasn't all the time by any means. So, like, what was your relationship between you and your sister? Like, were y'all super close or super not close? I don't know. Like, does it go? What way does it go? You, it's your only person contact you have some of your age, so you're super close, or you spend so much time with that person you like don't even want to see their face in the morning. You know, so we we definitely had um, like a, 
an oscillating relationship. Okay. We would play together a lot when we were younger. Um, the other thing you would do a lot of is like play dates or like go hang out with friends. Um, you got to schedule those so in advance. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to like do it with uh, your friends and coordinate with your parents to get dropped off and picked up. And usually you do it for like either like all day or an overnight. Right. Because otherwise it was like, is it worth driving 45 minutes to see someone right. for an hour? It's like watch the football game. Might as well right. just go kick a soccer ball around in the woods. Um, kick it against a tree and have it come back. Yeah, man. I used to just go outside and we had the little, used to like the little grassy area. Yeah. I used to just kick my soccer ball at a tree. I actually had this lump of four, clump of four trees. You're being serious right now. I'm being serious. I'm dead serious. <laughs> That's how I would practice my shots. I'd have like three or four soccer balls and I would aim for a tree. And if it came back, I'd get another shot. So there was a real incentive to be good. Yeah, man. Um, so I showed deadly accurate now on the juggling, pitch. Juggling, practice my <laughs> dribbling. Um, I rode bicycles a lot. Uh, by the time I was in middle school, I could easily ride 10 to 15 miles to visit my buddies on the other side of town. We'd you, meet up, we'd have a little bike gang, and uh, sometimes we'd bike another 10 to 15 miles to go to the pool. <laughs> so on a nice hot summer day, Jesus. Sam might be biking, you know, 12, what, 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 okay, now I'm in eighth grade, so what's that? Putting a 50 miles round trip to go see the pals and go what's, take a dip in the pool. Yeah, what's, so what's eighth grade? Eighth grade, how eighth old are you then? You're like 14? Yeah, at five, 13. Yeah, so I'm, I'm 13 and I'm biking, you know, let's say 20 miles to see my friends and go to the pool and then 20 miles back. So I'm doing 40 mile bike rides just to like hang out and have a social life. Dude, can you tell a story of, you told me this story relatively recently within the last year of like, you like peering out your window or like were you coming back from soccer practice one day or something and you saw some kid like riding oh. a bike yeah yeah so I, I ended up I, I did end up meeting a few friends um, on my street so my town is I, I lived in the town of Holden but I lived on Upper Dedham Road okay and Dedham was the town right next to us mm-hmm. so I lived uh, quarter mile from the, the town line okay got you so half the actually 90% of the people on my street lived in the other town over. Dead, okay. So I didn't go to school with them. I didn't socialize. I didn't even know they existed. Oh, wow. And I mean, Because you can't see. You're not like coming in contact with them. No. And, and, our, and he says he lives on their street. Like I grew up in a cul-de-sac. So like the kids. I grew up on a tenth of a mile long street. And there were 25 kids on that sh- yeah, tenth yeah. of a mile block. My street. You're saying on a street. This is like a miles of miles long few mile long stretch several mile long stretch is your street yeah You're not like contacting these individuals on a regular basis so my street was 30 times as long as yours <laughs> and had about the same amount of kids on right. it <laughs> spread over you know 30 times the length all hidden by trees all hidden by trees no one's playing on the road right we're not exactly. playing in the road cars are going 50 60 miles an hour down that road right exactly exactly um and so we were coming back from, from soccer practice or something one day, and I saw these two kids out on bicycles, like, riding past my house. And I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> humans! Kids my age. Like, <laughs> I wonder who these guys are. I better figure it out. Maybe we've got some, some new friends in town. Right. And so I ran in. I grabbed my bike. I, like, booked it down the hill, booked it up the road, and chased these motherfuckers down. And I was like, hey. <laughs> Y'all live around here? <laughs> and like, they, do y'all want to ride bikes together? And they live like uh, two and a half miles away. 
Which or, is like a next door neighbor. three miles away. So I was like, you're my next door neighbors. This is tight. Um, and we used to, we would meet up occasionally. We'd ride bikes around the neighborhood and we'd like, I don't know, like throw rocks at each other <laughs> and throw apples. We used to, we used to hide in this ditch next to this apple tree and throw apples at cars. Oh, damn. Um, okay. We did some of that too. Yeah. We do we, have some common ground oh, here. Oh man. This, whether you're living in a city or you're like. Out in the middle of the woods, you're still no, harassing drivers. Nothing <laughs> like throwing object cars. Yeah, so so that's when I met that's when I met Blake and Corey. I just made up that second name. I can't remember the name. <laughs> in case you're listening, Blake and Drake. Um, cool yeah, man. That's when I met JT and Drake. <laughs> My pals from Holden, Maine. You don't even know your friends' names, dude. The most astonishing thing to me. I have a couple more questions about growing up in the wilderness. <laughs> But I think the single most astonishing to me is, and I was saying this to your your friend Haley, who I just spent the last few days with as well, because she grew up in a, in a town, I guess. I just know, like mine. A nearby town, which is like 50 miles away. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the woods. In the woods as well, right? Like, seriously, y'all grew up like tens of miles away from each other, but mm-hmm. went to the same high school. Yeah. Which to me, it's like within a 10-mile radius of my, of my house that I grew up in, you've got like... 10 high schools, right? So I was like, but both of y'all are so, in my mind, shockingly normal. Oh, yeah. And not even like normal. because you're weird, dude. <laughs> it's because you're like messed up, but. No, but not even like normal, like you don't have any, like, like you're not criminals or like deviants. Like you guys have like advanced social skills. You're extroverted people. Like you're like above normal. Like you're above average social Beings. It's crazy to me. How does I don't understand how does that happen? Like, how are you developing your social skills on a day? I guess it's school, right? But then, like during the summer, you're like fucking talking to yourself in the woods, like kicking a soccer ball against a trunk of a tree. I didn't talk to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may have. Um, yeah, no, I I learned That's how to play all different sorts of social roles because <laughs> um, I didn't have other friends to interact with. So it's very easy for me to uh, reliable social Yeah, I was like, I had Chameleon. to be, I had to be the bully, and I had to pick on myself. Um, you got to do what you got to do. Giving yourself a swirly. Yeah, yeah, that was a rough day. I I didn't want to I didn't want to I didn't want to see myself at home that day. Dude, um, I don't know, man. I don't think you there's like an answer to that, but it's, it is just shocking to me yeah. how that fucking happens. I mean, so once you get. Once, so once we, our, our, let's see, our middle school had probably about 30 kids in each grade, maybe a little bit more than that. 30 yeah, no, kids in each 30 grade. 30 kids in each grade, wow. maybe see, 40, like... maybe 40 kids in each grade, so that's what, like 160 kids total. Do you all have like homeroom classes or just like one class? Two classes per grade, we had two, okay, we had two I got classes you. per grade. It was around 20 kids a class. I got you. No, that can't be right. So there's just, eight. It was 18 kids a class. I'm thinking about my seventh grade. I just was, okay. It's like 18 kids a class, and we had four classes. So what's that? Are y'all switched? 54. Y'all switching classes? Like you go into a different class? For, there's like a science teacher, we a math teacher. We started rotating. We started rotating in sixth grade. And do you have like leveled classes? So like, is there like an honors classes, and then like when you get to high school, is there like AP and shit? So they never. Everyone's just kind of taking the they same. They never stuff. formally leveled them, but everyone knew who the good teacher was and the bad teacher was. And the good teacher had the smart kids, and the bad teacher had the, the stupid kids. The kids that uh, were disciplinary issues. Oh, so it wasn't even an a- academic 
like uh, assignments. It was more like, it was yeah, more we're, like we're who's gonna, gonna give, cause disruptions. We're gonna give Miss Doyle the tough kids. And because she's the bad teacher, or because she's the good teacher. Because she would, either, she would whip them into line. That's good. I like that. Miss Lucian was the bad t- teacher. Everyone knew that Miss Lucian was like not a good teacher. So then, all the smart, the kids that had the potential had the bad teacher. Not always. Sometimes it worked out like that. Okay. But I think it was mostly around the because di- I think at a rural school, the incentive is to keep the teacher. Right. <laughs> More Got so you. than accelerate the Got student. You. Got you. Got you. I keep the be, doors open. I could be wrong, but they're nah. like, no, we just need this thing to run. Right. We need to keep these doors open. We don't open. have another teacher. But then when you went to high school, right, like it's like multiple of these towns in the woods combining together, right? Yeah. So explain that system. Actually, that's an interesting system because you went to a private school, but you didn't right. pay for it. Explain all that. Right. So um, I was either thinking about making a joke or actually just explaining <laughs> it. I'm going to explain it. Okay, good. I'll make the joke later. You, so the way the school system works, um, in Maine, there's a, a lot of... <laughs> oh, look at this guy right here. Oh, man. We've got a we got an audience, and he's calling for jokes. <laughs> <laughs> got a seagull about 10 yards from us howling at the top of his lungs. Yeah, probably wants to... Uh-oh. Oh, we got a second got one a flying in. He looks like he's trying to grab our attention, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was looking right at us. He probably wants a French fry or something. It's not happening. Whoa, fuck. It's happening. We're getting invaded, folks. Yeah, have you seen the movie Birds? <laughs> we got three now. I think they want something from us. All right, yeah. let's try to let's try to keep the ball rolling. We'll try to keep... keep. Oh, my we God. Might, they look like little pterodactyls. We might have um, to escape here in a minute. They look aggressive. So, the school system... <laughs> Please tell us more about the main public education system. It's a riveting conversation. Uh, I find it interesting. There's a bunch of small towns, and uh, they don't have their own own high schools because they, they just don't have a population right. big enough to support it, a taxpayer base for that. So high schools tend to be located either in in bigger or slightly bigger cities, towns, bigger towns, um, that have the tax revenue to actually support it, or they'll get a bunch of small towns and group them together and sort of make a preferred high school for those towns. So there might be three or four towns that group together. If you don't fall into one of those, I either live in the big town that has its own high school or I live in the system that's already sort of put together a high school and everyone's going to feed into that, then you have what they call in Maine school choice. Yeah. And you can you can go to any school. Private or public. Private or public. That's awesome. In the state of Maine, and Maine will give you like a, a an allocated amount of funds to go and, te- and attend that high school and it's like based on I think it's based on the same amount of money is available for every student I think it's around I want to say $13,000 but I'm not positive right. what that like tuition voucher is so this potentially you would have to pay some tuition then so if you if you pick a private school that's like um Fifteen thousand. Andover, Andover, or Freiburg Academy. Right. Uh, it's like a private uh, boarding school in Maine, whose tuition is probably more expensive than that thirteen thousand dollars. You might have to pay a little right. bit additional. Um, but that wasn't the case. But basically, for you. but basically, you can go anywhere. Uh, so the school I went to was in the town of Bangor. It wasn't Bangor Public High School. It was John Baptist Memorial High School, which was a private school but had a bunch of students who weren't paying to go there, but right. were from these small towns all around the area and went there because John Bapp's sort of mission was 
it's a college preparatory high school. We right. want, you know, people who are, are planning on attending a four-year school. and Right. We uh, want the cream of the crop. Cream, smartest people I've ever met. You've met a bunch of people from John Baptist. You've met Anders, Haley, myself. Um, that might be it. They're all sharp. Probably the smartest people you've ever met. Um, Every single Yeah, I'm not going to go that far, but they're not <laughs> dumb. They're not dumb. They're all a little off in some ways. Yeah, those are three broken people. <laughs> um. <laughs> but intellectually, they seem fine. They seem nah, like they got nah. the capacity to support themselves in life. No, so it was a, it was a great school. That was a, that was a fun experience going Did there. You, like, so, like, it was an option for you to go to, like, Bangor High or whatever. Mm -hmm. But your parents wanted you to go to the private one. Yeah, my parents, it was, it was definitely easier for my family because my sister was there. Okay. And, um... Did they provide you transportation? That school? Yeah. Yes. So, the transportation was a little interesting. You had to, like, get on a bus that brought us to Brewer High School, which uh -huh. was the closest public high school. Mm -hmm. And then there was a bus that John Baps provided that, like, shuttled people from Brewer two baps okay so it was like the brewer public school system sort of picked up everyone from our area mm -hmm. and brought them there and then we could get a connector got over you the is that how you got to school no so my sister was a year and a half older than me oh when she had a car I started school she had a driver's license nice. so i rode into school with her um or perhaps for a little bit freshman year my parents who were both working in bangor uh, could drive us in and then go to work right gotcha. after. So we'd get dropped off early at, at John Baptist. It was a you know a nerdy place for the college prep kids. It was cool to come to school early. And was do it your, really? And do your homework. Maybe for real? Yeah. We would all hang out. That was the, cool? In the auditorium, and everyone would pull out their homework, and you would uh, uh, collaborate right. on, with whoever was the wow. best at the subject. And they would, really and they would tutor you. Really, the other kids kind of like cheating or copying, but <laughs> no, that's a cool system. I mean, that definitely didn't happen in my school, but that's cool. That sounds like a place of fucking like you know, a place a, of knowledge, a, a place of knowledge, a place of learning, like a quality academic institution. That's I'm I'm, I'm being serious. That's yeah. cool. No, I, I don't really know how they did it exactly, um, but they did sort of cultivate this thing. Like it was very much a community. Right. Um, like people would show up in the morning. You get there. Let's say school started at seven thirty. People would be there as early as like six, six thirty. Damn. And like hanging out, chatting with their friends, and you know doing homework, doing whatever. Um, I don't know. Maybe the band kids did music. Right. There's shit, like, but, but like, there's like no one smoking weed under the bleachers and shit, or like fucking in the bathrooms. It's not that kind of place. Yeah, there's some fucking in the bathrooms probably. The weed mostly happened outside of the school. Okay, so y'all were part. Y'all are still and, normal high school kids. And probably, probably. Yeah, sometimes in the morning, but more often probably after school. Okay. So it wasn't just like a bunch of fucking academic robots. It wasn't just a robots. bunch of nerds. It okay. wasn't just a, We were nerdier uh -huh. than, than Bangor High. public schools, Bangor or Brewer. Um, so Brewer is one town, you know, like between Holden, Brewer, Bangor. Um, and that's actually where most of my friends from middle school went to Brewer. I got you. Because um, they were cool. Right. <laughs> Did y'all get your ass kicked in sports by those guys? No, we whooped their asses. Really? Oh, yeah. Did y'all have a football team? Yeah, we had a football team. They got their asses whooped when I was there. <laughs> but like so, soccer and stuff, did y'all... Soccer, we were pretty nasty Y'all would beat them? We would beat Brewer. Nice. And, and we beat Bangor, and Bangor was like more than twice our size. Wow, so they were like... 
the worst of both worlds. Those guys are just kind of like the dredges they of society. They were really good at some stuff. They just weren't as good at soccer. Well, we they were weren't as good at school, we and they were weren't as good at sports. man. We were like... Did the people in Bangor at these public high schools, did they... Did more of those people end up, like, staying in Maine? Or, like, not going off to school, or... Yeah, so that's... A, 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 college... Admittance. Mm-hmm. People who intended to go to college and were accepted and probably went to college from John Baptist was like 90, 99%. Damn. So it was almost every student who graduated went on to college. Wow. Um, the 1% or 2% either like enlisted in the military, took like a gap year, or like, you know, maybe they did something else. Everybody had a plan. But everybody had a plan. Everybody met multiple times with their guidance counselor wow. to like review your college apps. Like, did you write your essays? What are who are your references? Blah blah blah. Damn. Um, we took junior was it junior or senior year? One of our English classes, like one of the assi- assignments, was like around like writing your application essays for right. college. Um, so the school did a really good job encouraging and preparing students for that. They offered, you know, all the AP classes you could pretty much imagine. And if they didn't offer it, they would either you could either go and take the class at Bangor, Brewer, or you could go for, like, math classes and stuff. You could go to the University of Maine mm-hmm. and do that shit. So there and was, you, like, a lot of that stuff. You ended up at George Washington, which is ultimately how our paths are going to end up crossing here in a minute. That's how right. did that happen? Why George Washington? Why George Washington? So I, you know, as you've pointed out, I lived in the woods. You did? I wasn't the most worldly <laughs> traveler or cultured young man. Um, but I, I was interested in, in politics. I was interested in international affairs. Um, I wanted to go to a city. and um, You went to, from, like, the middle of nowhere to kind of, like, the center of the world, really. Yeah. Actually, I've always sort of thought the world revolved around me. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, but I no, think this no, kind of... No, I did. It, I this, did. That decision is... It, it's reflective of kind of who you are as a human being. And you and I, of all the people I've interviewed thus far on this podcast... I'm thinking here. That's why you're hearing a pause. Just to make sure I don't say anything like if anyone. But yeah, you got, you're the most similar to me in like our decision-making process and our outlook on life and like I think who we want to be and uh, how we want to go about living our life and our decisions that we make. Like you're an adventurous spirit and you make like kind of crazy decisions just like <laughs> I do. So like, no, but from yeah. going from li- growing up in the woods in a very small town, rural area, and then going to George Washington University because you want to study politics and be like the mi- the middle of the action mm-hmm. and decision-making processes globally, that's like a big jump. But it, I think it's representative, I think it's admirable of like taking, having the courage and the taking the initiative to do that. But it sounds like that's what you wanted to do. Like you want to yeah. be like, I'm, you know, I need to be in this shit. What did you totally. want to be when you grew up? Like, so oh, not like, man. so think back like child, like early childhood. And then, so what did you want to be when you like a little kid? And then, oh, okay. yeah, I got that one. And then more rationally, as you got older into adolescence, what did you want to be like going to college? So if like me, for instance, mm-hmm. and I've said this in another podcast, like, I wanted, there was no doubt in my mind, all throughout my early childhood, I was going to be a professional athlete. Professional athlete, professional athlete, professional athlete. And I've told this story a couple of times too. My ninth grade honors English class, we had to write, I forget exactly what the theme of the, the, the essay was, but we had to write some essay on like, I don't know, coming to terms with growing up or what we wanted to be or something. 
and it was I like spilled my heart out in this essay where I was it was the first time I acknowledged when I was you know 14 years old yeah. like fuck I might not I'm probably not gonna I'm not gonna be a professional athlete like you see I'm at this giant high school I see like athletes from all over the state and I'm like fuck I just don't have that athletic God-given athletic ability and that, and I was in the throes of struggling with OCD and I kind of felt like man it's gonna take me all to dig myself out of this um, and so then I really kind of started to think and once I got to college I was like okay I started to think, okay, maybe I'll be like a sports writer. And then that kind of developed into like, I'm interested in the international things and politics. So like, talk to me about your yeah. dream development from childhood up into college. Jeez, I'm, I'm trying to think what I wanted to do when I was in high school. But what, before that, I, I mean, I know without a doubt, my, my first career ambition was to be a cowboy. <laughs> Positive. And I, you know, I took horseback riding classes. I got the boots. I didn't take those things off for like months, and I was pretty, pretty sure that that's like what I like. I was like, I want to ride horses. I want to walk, you know, like wrestle cattle. <laughs> um, and I thought I, I thought I could do that. And then I sort of found Dude, out you can't do still do that, maybe. Well, that's. I think it's kind of like obsolete. Like, I feel like maybe I just maybe that's not a job anymore. have, like, a cow prod, <laughs> like a, like a gra- taser. My grandma, Toadie, always wanted to be a cowgirl. Actually, I think she might have also wanted to be a cowboy. Toadie um, and I should talk. <laughs> Toadie and I get along well, and that might be one of the big reasons why. Speak the same language, Pilgrim. Um, so then at what point did you, you kind of come to terms? Do you remember coming to terms like, okay, maybe cowboy yeah. isn't like a viable career I'm option? I'm thinking I must have been in middle school when I realized like, no, that's not really. When you probably applied to GW and you saw that wasn't on like the, yeah, the I saw like list. It was. <laughs> I was like, so none of these AP credits go towards uh, cow, cow wrestling? Um, yeah, so probably in middle school I realized that wasn't really much of a thing. I, I think for a while I probably wanted to be like a, a, an, an author or a writer. Okay. Um, I certainly wanted to be an adventurer. What does like that a, mean? An explorer. Like I wanted to go to unknown I got lands. You. I, that might have even started as young as as the cowboy thing. So I maybe I could do do both. Okay. Take the cows to unknown lands. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was I've, I've, I was always obsessed with like exploring, like being out, discovering new stuff, seeing new right. stuff, just generally going on adventures. You still are. Um, I still am. And, you know, that's when I, I, I never quite really, like, wrestled to the ground. Like, how do you do that today? Right. Like, is that an astronaut? Is that, like, an archaeologist? Right. Is that a geologist? How do you monetize yeah. this passion? How do you make that a career? Um, and I was talking with one guy who was, like, an anthropologist who would go and they would assess it was almost like a land surveyor meets anthropology uh-huh. so if anyone found any sort of like artifact or remain anywhere they were going to do an industrial development this guy would have to go and explore that whole area uh-huh. and like map it out and just like find out what was going on everywhere um, and that sounded kind of cool I was like oh you're like an adventurer in the 21st century right. where we already have a map of everything right but you get like the micro you like really get yeah. into it but we don't have a map of everything. This is gonna be a real. This is gonna be a, a bad seg or aside. But we were talking about this last night around the campfire with your parents. This fucking lost city in Honduras, yeah. dude. Yeah, the leader they're, machines. And they're stuff. like yeah. just still discovering these lost fucking cities. It's crazy. Alex, you have no idea. I read that book. So there's there's this book out. It's called The Lost City of the Monkey God. 
Um, check it out on Amazon. I don't have any investments. <laughs> I don't have any invested in this. Um, but it's a cool book. And it's like, it, it's, it's totally, and which is, which is what's got me thinking about like anthropology and archaeology. And even um, there was like microbiology, there was all, all these sciences were involved in this trip to this like rainforest in La Mosquitia in Honduras where Alex and I used to, well, we didn't live in the, the jungle, but we lived in the country. And I, I, I've always wanted to go out there and like go and do a trip. Like you dude, can go yeah. rafting through it, you can go hiking through it. Yeah, we need but to do that, dude. We do still we need to do that. definitely need to do that. But these people found this, you know, like lost city that no one had been to in 500 years. And I was like, that, like I read that book and I was like, that is what, like, how do I get involved in that? Like, so if you read this, this book came out like a couple years ago, right? This book came out uh, probably 2017. Yeah. So you still think as a grown man now, we're both 30 year old grown men, right? We're supposed to, society. I am a 30 year old. <laughs> I don't know what this thing about grown man is. Like, I've I'm spun around on this I'm like, for 30 years. Have you done 30 rotations around the sun? I've done at least 30 rotations. Okay, around but the according sun. to societal standards, like you need to stop thinking about like going and hopping in the jungle, dude. And yeah, but that's just bullshit. <laughs> People change their careers all the time. Okay, good. This People is... like, I don't think a career. I don't think a career exists today. Um, there's all kinds of like writing about that now too, because. People do all these different. We were talking with with Haley, one of my best friends, um, today, and she's telling about her, her boyfriend who, like, when he turned thirty, decided, "Oh, I don't really want to be an architect. I think I'd like to be an airplane pilot." Right. And then he flies commercial planes for Frontier. Yeah. So there, there's nothing that says you can't change your career. Totally. I think we're gonna totally blow that whole concept of careers up, and it's about like, what are you capable of doing, and what do you want to do. And I, I don't know. I, I just tend to think that I should live an unconventional life. Preach, Samuel. Fucking preach, dude. This is what I want this. I, I want these kind of messages to be spread in the podcast. And certainly I've interviewed a lot of my friends who are living more traditional lifestyles. And that's totally cool as well. There's no, uh, there's no judgment here at all. But I also want people who are listening to this to realize, like, dude, there is no fucking, there is no longer a prescription or a recipe book or a blueprint for how you're supposed to go about your life professionally, personally, or whatever. Follow what you feel is like gonna make you fulfilled and actualized as a human being, even if there's a lot of fear attached to that, man. Yeah. And so Sam here, if he wants to be a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if he wants to like investigate this fucking lost city, no one else is investigating it apparently. Apparently the Hun you were telling me last night the Honduran government is kind of just posting up military around there. I can almost guarantee you there's oh, very little figure action. It out. Well, that's oh, the yeah, other the thing. Honduran I could government the, I'm sure is going to fucking figure that out. Could really be an adventure. I could be the guy who's like looting the cities. Totally. Not a little black market. <laughs> you can you know, do be that guy. At one point when I left Honduras, um, I remember that day. It was a fucking sad day. That yeah. So I left Honduras. I came back to the US. I thought I was going to you know, I thought I was so smart and like there's a big ego thing that happens when you live in a place like really Honduras is. and you're the white dude. Yeah. Or the white dudes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where you, you're like... You, you think know, everyone, you're hot shit. Everyone knows who we are. Everyone, like... I can go in anywhere and people, you know, will... Treat you will, with respect. Will treat me well. And will, assume like, that you're, like, some sort of, like, a first-class citizen. Assume I know something about something. Right. Um... And then I got back, and I like, couldn't get a job in the U.S. I couldn't right. get a job, like, washing dishes. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, like, applying. I want to go abroad again. I want to do something in international development. And I'm looking at this, like, this organization in Nicaragua. 
and I get like an interview, I do a Skype interview. They're similar to Organization for Youth Empowerment where, where Alan and I worked a little NG. Did, did, did they know about it yet? No, we're going to get into that. Well, okay. I, they probably, I've probably spoken a little bit, but, we're, but we'll get into it more specifically. Youth Development NGO, Honduras, Arts, Crafts, Radio, <laughs> Good, crafts. Public Message. There were Arts and Crafts. Like um, how you led with Arts and Crafts. <laughs> leadership Development, Good Capacity finger, Building Classes, finger painted for three years. I didn't get into, <laughs> I didn't get into many of the arts or crafts. I played a little soccer, though. Um, and Arts and, and I'm, I'm interviewing with these people. They sound seem pretty cool. They're like Oye, but not as well developed and like not really don't quite have their shit together yet. Mm. But um, they're on this lagoon in Nicaragua, and it sounds just totally beautiful. Right. Like they've got the place hooked up. But then I start researching the people involved, right? And they were doing. Um, the, the, the two guys involved had been, were, were, one was a biologist and the other one was like an archaeologist. And they had been involved in the expansion of, oh, I guess it's not the Panama Canal, but putting a canal through the lakes in Nicaragua right, yeah. to connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and, and create a al- alternate route to the Panama Canal. Right. And so they did this massive like uh, investigation of where they could, what the what the biological impact right. would be, environmental impact, and also are there uh, archaeological sites, whatever that need to be preserved or will be destroyed or whatever. And they had found all these artifacts, and these guys had stolen them and like sold them on the black market, and were involved in this like huge scandal, mm-hmm. and were you know in all the local papers, all these like. And I was just like, wow, like, can I go and work for those guys? Is that yeah. conscious? Is that, is that uh, moral? Like moral a, yeah. mor- are these guys moral characters? Uh, upright They're entrepreneurs, man. Citizens? I don't know. Um, but what happens with those artifacts anyways? You know, who knows? So I, des- I decided I would, I, would, I would pull out my application and not go to Nicaragua. Wait, the NGO was involved in pilfering the artifacts? Yeah, the founders of the NGO were the guys who like... Who had pilfered these artifacts? Oh, and then they had started an NGO. And they started an uh, NGO, a separate NGO that was like used some of the money. Probably, who knows? Maybe they were certainly. giving it back to the community sounds in a way like, that yeah, like the community may never have seen otherwise. But um, reinvesting yeah, so the community. I, I said I decided I would not would not go work with them. All right, so let's get into that. It's kind of a good segue down to Honduras. All right, so first, so when you went to, we'll go from GW then Honduras. So when you went to GW, you, what did you declare as your major? So let's see. What what did I declare? I think I started out as a U.S. government and politics major, and so like political science, basically. Yeah, political science, and I took a couple classes on political science, and they didn't really teach you anything about political science. It was all like even our our, our like introductory or basic classes. Like I thought I would be learning a lot more, maybe political philosophy. I uh-huh. thought I would understand more about why. We believe that democracy is right, or why, you know, what's the philosophy behind how we've created governing systems, why we've done it this way versus that way, why we consider this uh, the most, you know, egalitarian or equal or free society. And we got, maybe we read a, a couple interesting articles on that, but every conversation basically devolved down into current day politics. Like Democrats versus Republicans, what's you. happening in Washington D.C., and D.C. is very much what I've I've found persistently to be the case is D.C. gets is is not a particularly academic city, 
but is a very like zeitgeist city. Whatever's happening in the news is like runs DC, runs the conversation, runs I think to a large degree the academic institutions. Yeah. And the, I, I just felt like all my classes were just like blowing in the wind, like American flags blowing in the wind. Right. We were just like going with what like whatever was on the news that day was sort of what we were all talking right. about. And I wasn't learning anything about right actual government and politics. I was right. just learning about the U.S. political system as it the, is the today. News. Yeah. And I was like, I, I guess I could learn this just watching CNN. Yeah. So I switched it up and I, I changed my major from political science to international affairs. And I focused on Latin America. And why did I focus on Latin America? I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I guess I'd had one class on Latin America. Did you speak Spanish or anything going cool. in? I, I had had two years of Spanish in high school and I did not speak it at all. Um and uh, but that's you know I kind of just charted a charted a course that way and and started taking some classes and I loved it and I would say those classes were a lot more philosophical totally in the sense that we started looking at uh, revolutions we started looking at uh, different governing systems we started looking at you know asking we're why going and wondering why you know what. U.S. foreign policy, geopolitics, um, and it was maybe what what U.S. Po- U.S. or po- political science didn't have was a a focal point that we could approach from different lenses, right? And that's what Latin American specific international affairs, you know, lent lent me. Um, was a focal point where we could look at populism, we could look at fascism, we could look at democracy, we could look at uh, pluralistic societies, we could look at you know all of these different things that affect how we govern, how we live, how we form communities, how we have create a world vision, whatever we want to call it, um, in in a different way than I was able to do just focus on U.S. government and politics. Right. Yeah, dude, I was kind of the same way. I don't remember, because I was an international affairs major as well, and I was particularly interested in Latin America. I don't know how I developed that particular interest in Latin America necessarily. And I really don't know what was the exact impetus for me to study international affairs. I think the difference between me and you, though, I had no political understanding or awareness whatsoever when I went to when I went to uh, college. Like, um, all I knew was sports, right? Yeah. And... Um, a lot of that was the OCD, right? Sports was like an escape from the OCD, which was kind of tormenting my mind all through my adolescence. And I could focus on sports, both playing and like following as a fan, as like an escape. I didn't have like much brain power left to like investigate other things. Once I got to college and the OCD kind of started to fade away through various ther- therapeutic means, I like, you know, my brain had more energy to expand and kind of be interested in other shit. But that was the same thing. My first international affairs class, it was like, it was that. It was like we were. St- all of a sudden, becoming aware of the fact, like, holy shit, there's, like, a whole giant world out there. Yeah. Like, this is fascinating. I want to learn more about this shit. And I'd taken Spanish, too, in high school. What is that, party boat? Yeah, there's, like, a Damn. party boat. What's it called? Cruising by. They've got a strobe light, and they're blasting some tunes. I don't know if you can hear that. Columbus Cruises? It looks fun. Um, anyway, yeah, the same thing. So that, the reason I bring that up is because that, like, mutual interest, both in international affairs... Uh, Latin America and then I started minoring in Spanish as well like I said I don't really know where the impetus for Latin America came from exactly but that's kind of where our paths started to converge yeah. so let's get into that story 
Well, I would, the, I would say I should give some like a little bit of credit. Please. Um, when I was in high school, we had a couple exchange students from Chile. Uh-huh. Um, and one of my best buddies from high school, who, who Alex knows, we met, meets later in life. Honors? Uh, a character, Anders Beal. <laughs> I need to get Anders is, on the podcast. Like, <laughs> was obsessed with this Chilean girl, Ooh. Maria Bustos. She hot? Maria was was beautiful. Beautiful right. Maria Bustos de Santiago. She sounds hot. Um, and, you know, so we had... In high school, I had a few connections to Latin America, and Anders was was probably a big influence there. Just you know, your your best buddy is like always talking about. I remember Anders had a piggy bank, and and every day he would be dropping change into this piggy bank, and it just said like Chile fund on it because he wanted to go down to Chile, and he probably saved up like because he'd cash it out. He'd have to cash it out. Every, he'd have to cash it out every couple weeks to get you know like cigarettes, beer, and cigarettes, but. <laughs> But but Anders is Anders is definitely you know was that got, the impetus got for, Latin America on my radar? Was Maria Bustos his impetus for Latin American interest? Maria Bustos did was, he ever express any interest in Latin America prior to Maria? Maria Bustos was like if Anders had had like a little like like little like bump of like heroin or something, Maria Bustos was like direct injection to his veins. <laughs> <laughs> He was mainlining Maria yeah. Bustos. Yeah, he mainlined Maria Bustos for a few years there. She, she was at y'all's school for a while then. She was never at our school. She was at Bangor Christian, which was the little Christian school down the road Damn, from Damn, that makes it kind of even hotter. <laughs> oh, yeah, the little, little Catholic girl from uh, Santiago, Chile, came up Damn. to Maine for a couple years. Did they ever date? Did he like? Oh, yeah, they, date. they oh, dated. Oh, for real? They dated. Yeah, they were, they were a, a thing, man. They were a thing, and Anders went down to Chile to visit Maria. Oh shit! So it happened uh, right after we graduated. The summer after we graduated co- uh, high, high school, school, I think. I, I think that's when you'll have to ask Anders. I'll ask Anders. And um, I mean, this dude like learned Spanish because of Maria. Right. And and Anders Spanish is like the most Chilean yeah. Spanish. Like I can't even understand the dude when he speaks Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like citing like Neruda to Maria in Spanish. That's like how he learned Spanish in junior year of high school. That's incredible. Yeah. He's a sharp dude. He's a little romantic. He's got a Latin thing though. I, sans the fact that he's now dating a girl from, uh, where's she from? Somalia. Somalia. Prior to that, I've only known honors for a year, but it seemed like he was always into Latina chicks. Oh yeah, he, he, was. he I was. can. I mean, I'm the same way, dude. I love Latina chicks. He likes Latina chicks. Um, well, he, he likes chicks. I mean, we all like, we like... He's in the chicks. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't really matter color or nationality yeah. for me. I guess if I had to rank them, I think I'd put Latina at the top. But the top, okay. Really, I'm not, you know, I'm not in a position to pick here. Be yeah. picky. Um, so you, okay, so you meet my sister then. My younger sister went to GW. Sam and I, this is how Sam and I meet. I went to University of Georgia. Sam's from fucking Maine. Yeah. Um, my sister went to George Washington University as well, and y'all met on like a... Like a community service trip of some kind or something? Was yes, that, right? that was a fun, that was a, a, a kind of cool thing. So, um, let's see, was sophomore, junior, junior year, soft, summer between sophomore and junior year. Maybe like 2009, um, 2010, 2009. 2009, Alex's little sister and uh, my girlfriend at the time had been putting together, they were very involved in these things that, at GW they call alternative breaks Mm -hmm. and so it's like during a summer during the winter break during the spring break 
instead of going and partying somewhere or just going home and sitting, um, college students like go on these these trips, international or national trips, and they do volunteer work and they learn about wherever they're they're going. And um, Alex's sister Morgan and my girlfriend at the time, Supriya, were planning this trip together. And they were going to take students down to Honduras. Uh, and this was going to be in the winter trip of, of my junior year of school, I guess. 08 going into 9? Yeah, oh, oh, or 09 going into 10. Okay. And um, I'm, yeah, talking right. to, I'm talking to my, my girlfriend that summer. And she's like, well, are you going to come down and visit me? I'm living in Maine at the time. She's in Pennsylvania. And I said, hey, I visited you in Pennsylvania. That was kind of boring. <laughs> so why don't we do something different like let's go somewhere like let's go abroad somewhere and we settled eventually on Honduras and we were going to go and basically do a recon trip and, and check out okay. Oye where they were going to take the volunteers and like check out Honduras a little bit and we were like let's just go like we can do like some volunteer work they're going to give us this like killer deal and like be our tour guide and stuff like this will be awesome and then we were like, well, let's open it up. Let's see if Morgan wants to go, the other trip leader. And um, and then what we decided was basically I was going to bring one of my buddies from high school, one of my buddies from home. Morgan was going to bring her best friend. Um, Julianne. Julianne. And uh, Supriya brought one of her friends from home. So it ended up being six of us. And we all went. And, like, none of us, like, I didn't know Morgan. Uh-huh. I definitely didn't know Morgan's friend. I didn't know Julianne. I just knew my buddy Pat. Right. And no one else really knew each other right. except for Supriya and Morgan and Supriya right. and I. And we went down and just had an amazing trip. Um, Kat, who was like the volunteer coordinator down there, uh, she's like a, an American who is living in, in El Progreso, Honduras, uh, before you know any of us got down there, was like our tour guide. We went all over the place. We went to Tela. We went out partying in San Pedro. We went out in El Progreso, it was just like a total blast. And um, that's when Morgan and I started to become friends. Uh, but I would only say started. Like mm-hmm. we hung out for one week and then basically went back to school and like didn't really see each other again. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up having to cancel the trip Morgan and Supriya were going to leave because uh, e- even when we had just gone down on that trip, that was immediately after the Golpe de Estado, the coup in Honduras, right. 2009. So there were like military checkpoints and stuff all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so Honduras, just a quick background, Honduras had a pretty, you know, rough history. Sam know more about it than I do. Um, but yeah, in 2009, right after they, or I guess right before y'all went down there, they had a coup. They had a military coup. Yep. And since then, man, and I mean, Honduras has essentially been like a failed state where there's really no yeah. governmental infrastructure and yeah. uh, gangs kind of kind of run the place. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of issues, violence. Yeah. It has corruption, whatever. Yeah. It's had the but, highest murder rate on the planet, or you know, government figures now say that it's gone down, but there's that's pretty dubious distinction. But, but also, and it's a and, very dangerous place. And I always get, I always have to say this. There's something that is I don't know if it's a product of that or if it was always existed in Honduras but the like community and the people you meet down there care so much more about each other and you and are like it's like one of the most welcoming totally places I've ever been totally uh and, and there's just something that was like incredible about the people I met in Honduras 
Right. But it's a weird fucking distinction because at the same time, it's like incredibly easy to make friends and all of a sudden you feel very loved and welcomed immediately and you become fast friends with people even if there's like a language barrier. Um, yet at the same time, you're like, like any stra- your you don't know which stranger walking down the street will put a bullet in your head for your iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a weird fucking dichotomy. Yeah. Where you've like, you got the most loving people in the world and then at the same hand, individuals who have like right. no value for human life whatsoever. And I almost, I, I almost, and, and I'm not positive, but I almost feel like one has trouble existing without the other. Okay. How so? Get into that. I think that there's a reason people have to have such a supportive, like close knit type of community. And I think it has something to do with like, the duress or stress of the situation, the vulnerability of people, mm-hmm. um, the reliance on community and each mm-hmm. other, that if these people didn't have these incredibly strong social networks um, and family networks where they, they supported and gave each other often what they had, whatever support that was. Um, You're just living in a I state of chaos. I don't think that, you know, people could, like, survive and make it work. Right. And And... I'm sort of fascinated by it because, you know, can you, does it exist? If you went to another, another place that, that had similar issues with like violence, crime, corruption, something like that, is, is the culture, you know, similar or is it different? And I, and I don't know that. Right. We haven't only had experience in one failed country. Uh, More than would be good to to ask ask that. But yeah, that's true, man. It's almost like living in such a dire circumstances cultivates and promotes a very tight-knit sense of community. Yeah. Well, and it's almost like you need an extreme to have the other extreme. Right. Like, you can't have a middle ground and an extreme. Like, look at American politics today. Right. We've got, like... Two polar opposites, polar, right? Like, do we have extremes? Or, or if you ask other people, maybe we've got a middle ground and just an extreme. Right. But it, it really seems like this is, like, the most polarized... Right. You know, I don't know maybe we get more polarized, but... Do you need to polarize this... Does does one thing going so far in one direction cause, you know, a, a, an equal reaction on the right. other side? I don't know. Dude, that is fascinating because I, I have thought about that. I guess I've never verbalized it like this, but it definitely has crossed my mind because when I think back to my time in Honduras, and maybe I thought about it when I was when we were down there, but it's like you every person, pretty pretty much everyone you interact with is either is, a friend or or not. Right. <laughs> but even so, dude, it's not like you ever interact with people who are like, you know talk to you about like how little they value human life or how they want to murder people for their iPhone or whatever everyone you talk with is very loving and friendly but yet it's you see it and you're not only are you aware of it you see it on a daily basis like extreme levels of violence yep uh, and ex- like complete lack of, of value for human life I don't know it's we- it, it just like occurs like the that like violence like burst out of society but like you're ne- you never come into like constant interaction with it like in your day-to-day conversations. It's not right. like when you interact with people on the street like they like creep you out or like scare you or whatever. It's just like, you know, you're used to spending time with all these friendly, warm, loving people and then all of a sudden you've got a gun in your face on uh, when you're walking on the sidewalk. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 I, and I mean there's like you, you I mean you know when when we right it was right after organizing Copa Oye. 
which is a story in itself. <laughs> and that <laughs> when you us. showed up to Honduras? Yeah, that was my first day in Honduras. So, so real quick. Oh yeah, go ahead. That was my first day in Honduras. So well, I, I don't know where we're, where where yeah, you should tell this one and then and then where where are we in the, our conversation? So, should we do a process check? No, no, no. Oh yeah, let's just so let's, let's just, just roll. Let's, let's just let it roll, man. Let's just a brief overview of it. So yeah, you and Morgan that trip falls apart eventually, but you and Morgan end up going down there together in summer of 2009 cuz didn't y'all end up taking a semester off? Yeah, so so Morgan and Supriya can't do the trip. I go back by myself. I'd already booked tickets. I was like, y'all can't do the trip. You got they went to Did they go did they go international? I don't know what I they did. Remember. They did it they did did a trip somewhere else. Um, they probably went to New Orleans again. And I just went by myself back to Honduras, which Summer George Washington University had deemed way too dangerous for students to go to. So you just went on your own dime? In the yeah, over winter break when their trip was going to go. I just okay. went on my own dime. I was just doing my own thing. And went down and had, again, I had a total blast. I stayed with, you know, the locals. I helped Luis, who was the director of the of Oye, put a, you know, cement parking lot in behind his house. Like, mm-hmm. I was just like, I was just like one of the guys. Right. Like, I was one of the boys. Ingratiate yourself. And, um, and then when it came time for Kat to come back to the U.S., uh, the folks at Oye called me up and said, hey, Sam, we want you to be our volunteer coordinator we want you to come down and and do it and i said yes yeah, cool but i'm like i'm in college right yeah they still said, well, in school you have a year left of school and they said well can you just do it you know like for a while and i said well why not <laughs> um and i like looked at my credits and shit and i was like i guess i can graduate if i take a semester off right um so i decided i would go down for the summer after junior year and the first half of senior year and then I come back halfway through senior year and just finish it up. Right. And um, that's what I did. I went down. I was going to be down for like eight and a half months, nine months, something like that. And Morgan was going to come down and do uh, like a summer volunteering with Oye. And just she was going to be down there for three months. And Morgan and I became roommates. And it was a blast. I mean, it Morgan's was my amazing. Sister. And I'll be honest. I don't know if I told Morgan this, but at first I was like pissed. I was like, I don't want Morgan here. Like, like, this is my show. I just wanted to come down to Honduras and, like, do this by myself. Right. Like, be, like, I like these people. Like, I don't. I understand like, that. Like, I yeah. want to be the only person from the U.S. here. Like, right. I'm, yeah. I don't know what you're doing. I get Morgan, that. you, like, you can go home. Right. And um, three months into it, and Morgan and I were, were really good friends at this point, and she's like, hey, I think I'm going to stay. Like, what do you think I should do? Yeah. And at this point, I was like, she could stay. I like Morgan. She's cool. Um, or she could go, and then I'd have my chance to just be like Sam in Honduras. Right. I was like, and that'd be cool too. Uh-huh. And I think at the end of the day, I came down on the side of Morgan, like, hey, you need to make this decision. Right. Either way, you know, I'll support it. Right. But like, you got a pretty cool thing going here. Right. And I understand if you want to stay. Right. Um, and she stayed, and, and, and that was awesome. I mean, I just had a blast. So y'all stayed in, all... In, in hindsight, I wouldn't do it any other way. Totally, dude. That's an invaluable experience to have. Yeah. I remember that's I had just graduated college, and I had you know gone out to Phoenix to do my teacher boot camp. I can remember being at teacher boot camp, and my mom calling me up, and Morgan calling me up, and being like, she's going to take a semester off of college and stay in Honduras and essentially volunteer. And even me, I'm a pretty crazy dude. Like, even I was like, like are we sure about this? <laughs> um... But yeah, dude, I, I, I couldn't be more happy she did. I think it was incredibly uh, positive for her development as a human being. And then ultimately that leads to 
me coming yeah. down there. Yeah. So y'all stay all of um, that summer. You stayed that first semester of your senior year. So this is now fall 2010. And then I get you guys go back to school for second semester. So this is spring 2000, winter, spring 2011. But then you guys were like, you guys were part of the community at that point and you'd gotten hooked. Like yeah, you, you'd so, gotten bit by the bug. And so then you guys start putting together this own, your own little nonprofit. Right. And so go ahead. What I would just say, Morgan and I, like the, the big thing that we sort of, trying to think exactly how to say this I so, so one, one thing that I, I my main responsibility while I was there was to organize and lead volunteer trips and then I had all these other ancillary things like translating doing uh, you know website and donor relations and all this all this other stuff that like existed that I had to do but supposedly our big money maker at Oye at that point to bring in funds for the programs was to host university volunteer trips. Right. Um, that was one of the big things we did. And, and we used to bring these trips down and they would like paint a mural and we'd drive around town and like see some stuff. And they always wanted to do something like build a school or like right. paint a school or like fix a school or like do, you know. Feel like they had accomplished something. Like feel like they had gone and like sweat and like helped these poor Hondurans like in a way that the Hondurans just couldn't figure out to do for themselves right and it, it was a little bit of just like you know total like mental masturbation on the part total. of like US Moral college student volunteers and, and let's be honest when I was down there like volunteering basically I was down there just like learning I was like going around like asking questions soaking stuff up I don't know if I picked up a hammer or like a I did actually the first time we went down we built a radio recording booth which was cool um, but the kids at Oye probably did as much of that as you know any of us right. um, Keep going. Keep and so what what it what we realized this like volunteer trips was was really all about was it, it was about you know going and learning about another culture it was about learning about what you know maybe international development was what nonprofits were doing what the difference between an international nonprofit and a domestic nonprofit was, how projects worked. Um, so we we just started, you know, getting developing this interest in, in all these other pieces that you were sort of getting through these volunteer trips. But we wanted to make that more the focus and, and start moving away from, hey, you're gonna go down and physically do volunteer work that will help Hondurans. Because at the end of the day, you know, if the Honduran as a Honduran school needed paint, you know, there were plenty of people willing and able to paint the school way faster and better than a few American college students could. Um, so we, we sort of wanted to start changing that dynamic and, and have like a little bit more honest, maybe a little bit more intellectually curious approach to what an international uh, university student trip could consist of. So we tried to put together this program we called pa Pas pa what was it? Paso, Paso Honduras. Paso Honduras, which means step Honduras. Or step to Honduras. I didn't even put that together oh, ever. The acronym that means step. Yeah, and it was this nice, like, Hondurans love acronyms. So I'm sure the P-A-S-O stood for something like, but I don't remember. Yeah. And so we tried to, we like, you know, basically made this little NGO. We got like four or five students to go down 
uh, to Honduras to do it. We worked with some sociologists, some artists, um, a bunch of youth, and uh, international aid workers, Caritas, um, maybe POSMO, actually. And yeah, POSMO. We visited which was, POSMO. Which was part of uh, PSI and, and uh, administering a USAID project. And um, we sort of put together this, this curriculum around, you know, what, what is international development and, and what does it specifically look like in the, in the case of Honduras? And we looked at Honduran culture and all this stuff. And it was, I thought it was a pretty interesting, pretty cool program. It was a big undertaking and definitely did not go smoothly at all times. <laughs> nah, dude. Um, but, yeah, we kind of, we had some balls dropped. <laughs> yeah, so and, that's how I came. So I just finished my first year teaching. I knew my sister had obviously taken some time off, and I knew about you at the time. I never met you to work in Honduras, and then she calls me up kind of towards the end of second semester of my first year teaching in, in Arizona, and she's like, yeah, me and Sam are, you know, starting this nonprofit, which is basically like we're going to bring college students down to, like, study the role that nonprofit organizations play in Honduran society, essentially, is what it sounded like to me, and they're like, do you want to come with us? That's a much more concise and better explanation. Than, I, yeah, <laughs> than the one I was giving. <laughs> um, I was going to pee. You had you had some time to kill. Yeah. Uh, uh, so like basically, do you want to come down and help uh, help us? And I was kind of like you know, but I, I was like the janitor of the project, like the fix. I was the guy no. come down and moving. No, you were the logistics guy. You like we had so many uh, balls dropped, and we'd get a little bit. Maybe Al could get into that actually with our our Honduran partners. That one of our Honduran partners. That had Al not been there, we would have been so shit out of luck. We, yeah. I mean, we needed, we just needed someone who could like move and groove and make stuff happen. And Al made that Problem happen. Problem solver, I guess. With like, with like zero experience in the country prior and just like jumping in like, what are you guys doing? Okay, yeah, we need to get like 17 like bottles of like water here and you need this guy to show up at 8 p.m. You got it, yeah. and we'd be like, okay, we don't know where he's going, but yeah, like he'll probably deliver. Yeah. Now we gotta, now we gotta fry these other fish. Yeah. <laughs> so Morgan is well, the way it seemed to me going down there, and this is kind of always my experience in the nonprofit world, especially in Latin America. It's like, seems like things are in place and things are gonna run smoothly, and of course, shit just hits the fan immediately. So it seemed to me like I was based. I kind of thought I'm just gonna be like one of the students. I'm basically going on this trip for free as one of the students and I can just kind of tag along with everybody else and maybe do some logistical things that they need help. But as soon as you get down there, like everything that's that's been planned, all of our like, speakers, organizations that have been scheduled aren't actually scheduled. More logistical stuff like transportation is falling apart. The car that we think we have doesn't exist. The food that we think we have procured to sustain the lives of our volunteer or our students, our participants doesn't exist. And so basically Sam and Morgan are, you know, the bosses, they're coordinating the whole thing. And so they would just give me like, you know, an order and I would kind of have to run around and like solve all these problems are falling apart. We all did it collectively, but you know, that ended up being my role. It's just like be a problem solver behind the scenes, kind of running around trying to, you know, plug holes in the dam. Um, but it was an amazing experience, dude. Like, looking back on it, it's incredibly hectic, right? Like you said, I've never been down there. It's very violent. All of a sudden, like, you have to constantly be looking over your shoulder when you're in public. It's incredibly fucking hot all the time. Um, there's all these problems going on. But, like, you grow so much even from just, like, I don't know, what was that, like, a six, eight-week experience that yeah. I was down there? Um, yeah, six, I, I was there for six weeks. You were probably eight. Eight, I yeah. You were longer. Eight, yeah, I was there a little longer. Um, so, yeah, that was our first foray in Honduras. We all go back. 
you figure out like you thought you had graduated college at that point. I remember you got news when you were down there, like yeah. your advisor got in touch with you from GW. It's like, uh, actually, you're not a college graduate. You're yeah. missing like one course. Yeah. <laughs> and you go back, and then I think you and Jordan were like starting the putting on starting a food truck in DC at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but then you also figured out like, okay, I'm starting a food truck, but I'm not a college graduate, so I gotta take like this one course on the side while I'm trying to get this food truck fired up. Um, and so we end up all going back to DC, or I go back to teach in Arizona. You go back work on the food truck and get your college degree. <laughs> get my GED. <laughs> Morgan goes back and is finishing up her last year of school. Which she's the shooting star of all of us, right? She's not only oh, finishing yeah. up last year of school, she's also finishing up a master's yeah, program. Yeah, she's, she's doing like a five-year master's in four right. years when she took a year, like a half a semester or half, half a year off. <laughs> yeah. You go back to D.C., the food truck doesn't really work out, yeah. right? Oh, man, that was, a, that was a trip. Yeah. But then you end up back down in Honduras full-time. Right. So you took, was it, what was it? You took the job that you had before? Yeah, but now so, for like an indefinite period? Yeah, so I, let's see, how did that go? Um, we found a replacement for me, Michael Solis. Right. Um, who's just like a baller, Princeton grad with a master's, went down and replaced me. So obviously I was, on the obviously I was invaluable. Right. Like, he replaced me with a Princeton grad. I didn't even have a have a college degree. Um, and But Michael kicked ass down there and was there for maybe a year and a half or two and a half years or something. Cause I came back. I was working on the food truck for a while, uh, finished up school, and then went went back. They, you know, they were looking for for someone else. My food truck didn't go so hot, mm-hmm. so I said, you know what? I've got another I've got another round of Honduras in me. I'm not done with that yet. Um, and I went back down and was there for a little over two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Morgan ends up graduating. She gets a job in Honduras as well. She ended up working in San Pedro Sula, which actually the most was the most violent city in the world at that time. We even Progreso, which certainly was no Shangri-La, but um, it was actually better off violence-wise compared and, to San Pedro Sula. You were back teaching in Phoenix? So I was back teaching now my third year. So third I finished year. up my second okay. year. You go down, take the Oye job full-time yeah. with no end, in, you know, indefinitely. Morgan gets the job with, uh, I guess it's Population Services International, yep. PSI. She's doing like sex ed, pregnancy prevention mm-hmm. type stuff in San Pedro Sula, kind of running that office. She's about 20, 30 minutes away from you. And then I applied to Peace Corps at the time. Oh, that's right. Um, and actually, I applied to Peace Corps the summer before my third year teaching. Got accepted, and they were going to send me to uh, Peru. And I remember I was at my like beginning of the year training, about to start my third year, and you and I had been talking back and forth, and this job had come open with another organization that was working in partnership with the Organization for Youth Empowerment, OYE, the organization you had been yeah, working Global with, Playground. the Global Playground organization. This job had opened up, and you were like, dude, you should take this job, because you like now know the lay of the land. I had met you know, yeah. all the actors that were kind of involved in that, and they had kind of offered the job to me. And so I... I very much contemplated like not going back and teaching my third year like a week before school was starting. Huh. But I felt really bad about it at that point, man. I was, it was, I had taught fourth grade two years in a row and then I was moving up with my fourth grade class to fifth grade so I knew these kids, I knew their parents, I knew their families. I felt real bad about just dipping out a year before school started. And I'd also told Peace Corps I was gonna do Peace Corps after my third year. So I was like, oh, I'll go back third year, this will give me a year to figure out what the fuck I'm gonna do. My third year of teaching is winding up, but then I now need to make a decision like, fuck, Peace Corps thinks I'm going with them, but 
you know, Sam, who I now feels like a brother, and my actual sister, sister. are still down in Honduras, yeah. and they're going to be there at least for another year. Yep. I kind of want to go down and be with them. So I end up telling Peace Corps, thanks but no thanks. And I take this job with Global Playground, uh, kind of working in tandem with OEA, your organization, and Students Helping Honduras, SHH, another nonprofit that was working in the area. And I was kind of, it was very ambiguous exactly what my role was. I moved down to Progresso with you. We move in together. I start initiating some project through Global Playground in my position. And about two months in, there's all kinds of violence breaking out. We had like a shooting in one of the one of the little village pueblitos, little towns yeah. that I was working in. There were multiple shootings on like in front of our house during those first couple months. Sam and I used to go up on the roof of our house and hang out at night, and we could see you could literally see shootings taking shootings, place yeah. on our roof because um, our we had like the tallest house in the neighborhood. You could like, we had the watchtower. <laughs> yeah, you could see this shit going down and. My organization would ask for like a weekly report of the state of things, not only my job, but also like what's going on the in safety the country, situation, yeah. right? And so about two months in, they want to evacuate the program and they either wanted me to go back and take a job at like, you know, their administrative office in DC or send me off to like start a similar initiative in Uganda. But I turned down Peace Corps in Peru because I wanted to be specifically with, you know, Sam Honduras, and yeah. my sister in Honduras. So. I just stayed there for the next, I don't know, six, eight months um, on my own dime, just kind of finishing up those projects to some extent, but also uh, did a lot of hanging out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did a lot of hanging out. But, you know, I know I'm going to have the mandate from my bosses, and I was there yeah. on my own dime, so I kind of, I did my, you know, I did work on continuing some of those projects, but not nearly with the same vigor as I was before. I just, Put together a great curriculum teaching photography yeah we did some digital editing put together some volleyball tournaments did like a survey on like the impact of OEA on on students that graduated from the organization that was kind of my my favorite thing but really more than anything just like being part of Honduran society um yeah I kind of wrapped it up I think right after you left yeah so Sam and I lived together for the next several months uh for about a year we ended up living together in Honduras Morgan as well was down in San Pedro and then we all kind of dipped out right around. No, Morgan stayed down there after we left. You dipped out toward the beginning of summer 2014. Yep. And I left like uh, a few weeks after you, summer 2014. Yep. So we kind of touched on this earlier. Like, how do you reflect back on your time in Honduras? Obviously, we talked about like how violent it was. Um, we've seen, we, you saw crazy shit. My sister's seen more crazy shit than all of yeah. us. We'll get her to touch on that. Yeah. Um, like specifically I can you know talk about you know our buddy Joe French who was um, a Honduran American down there teaching teaching art actually in an English school up on the coast uh, and he got shot in the head stomach and and chest for his iPhone right outside his house in a town called Puerto Cortez and you know so we were intimately involved in in you know some crazy shit but there's also like a positive side of that as well like you touched on like you feel like you're hot shit down there you feel like this little mini celebrity because you're the white guy in this town where there's no other white guys and everyone kind of like almost like looks up to you an extent because I don't know you're fucking American it's it's kind of fucked up but you can't help but like yeah. kind of get a high off of that when I look back and came to coming back from Honduras you feel kind of rattled when you come back like it's definitely a sense of relief when you come back to the states like I've got a hot shower I can go get any kind of food I want at the grocery store. I can have shit delivered to my house. Everything's far more accessible. Like, life is easier. Yeah. 
but it does also feel like you're coming off a drug and like you want to, like you miss it. Do you feel that way? Like, do you miss it? Oh, totally. I mean, it's, um, you know, when I look back now, I rarely think about the violence or like, when I think about like living in Honduras, I just think about, oh, I was having a great time. You know, I had, you know, I was living with some good friends. I was living with you mm-hmm. and with Morgan. Um, I was dating Kata. I was like hanging out with her family. Um, I think about, and, and I was working at Oye. I loved working at Oye. I could wake up most days and feel really good about the work I was doing right. and going in and doing it and why and seeing this bigger picture. And um, I was still, I was learning a lot about the culture and history and people. And, and I was just having a, 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 all around a pretty good time. Um, while I was there and maybe and maybe I wasn't learning quite as much towards the end as I was at, at the beginning where it's just like sensory information overload and it's like every day it's something brand new mm-hmm. at, at some point it's like yeah we got long periods where it felt like nothing's happening right um, and it's a lot harder to do stuff there than it was or than it is in the in the in the uh, being in a city in the U.S., if I was living in Holden, right. I might feel something different. Right. But there's, you know, there's a lot more stuff, and it's a lot safer and easier to do stuff in the U.S. So you, it's like walking you, through mud, man. You take you take things for granted in the U.S. that you you don't in Honduras. Like if you go to a concert in Honduras, it's like you had to like plan and like figure out like how you're gonna get mm-hmm. from. El Progreso to San Pedro. What car were you gonna use? When were you gonna catch the bus? Like, how did you get there? Like, oh, was it okay? You got you got there. How did you get to the concert? Like, mm-hmm. Who had the ticket? Where mm-hmm. was it? It's like nothing quite like is as easy as it should be. So whenever we do anything like that, it was it was always like, you know, maybe it even seemed way better than it actually yeah, was. It does. Um, and then in hindsight, you look back on it and you're just like, wow, like we were having a great time. There was definitely moments when we were there where it was like. No, we were just like, it was just Alex and I sitting on the roof, mm-hmm. just hanging out, mm-hmm. just watching the grass grow, <laughs> watching the iguanas sun themselves. Um, the iguanas tan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's a, looking back on it, it, it it's like my, my glasses are really rosy. I remember I went back down in January of this year and... Uh, you know, a lot of stuff kind of came back to me, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Like, actually, it was kind of a pain in the butt to like go to the grocery store. It's totally. kind of like a pain in the ass to like go to bed at night because it's still 105 degrees and there's like no AC, and you know, you just like realize like, "Oh, okay, yeah, no, it's not quite as good as I remember it." Yeah. It also, you know, is never that bad. It's like we can survive and we can thrive doing like literally anything or anywhere I mean, we have people who live in the desert in mm. Phoenix we have people who live in like Maine we have people <laughs> who live in like Alaska and mm-hmm. Canada and like we put us in any climate we're gonna have fun we're gonna like yeah. do stuff um, but it's it was tough it's, it's a tough place to live but then coming back there's totally different things I was dealing with um, so like the transition back to living in the US was like not easy for me first of all like i moved back in with my parents mm-hmm. couldn't get a job for a while mm-hmm. um 
you know, went from having sort of that, that ego boost of being unique and different mm-hmm. to being just another, like, white dude in a white state in mm-hmm. a pretty white country, mm-hmm. less so now. Um, and it's like that, you know, it's, it, 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 was a, it was a bit of a shock. Like, I, like I didn't transition smoothly back in, into the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a good friend, Anders, who came back from Chile at the same time. And you were back, right? You mm. went back to your mom's place. Mm, yeah, kind of. Oh, kind of. I went to Costa Rica for the summer right after Honduras. So I had a couple months in Costa Rica. Then I took that job with uh, Pan, Pan Am Post doing, like, journalism stuff. So I was bouncing around. Yeah, I was kind of at my mom's, at my mom's place a little bit, bouncing around, kind of like your friend Haley does now, working yep. from a computer. But then I kind of – then after that, though, I did my Central America trip where I just kind of went through Central America bouncing around. Um, so yeah, my transition was a little more smooth because I did take the Costa Rica job. I did take this Pan Am post, this journalism job that had me kind of just traveling around. So I wasn't just like immediately thrown, thrust back into like normal life. I had this like still nomadic lifestyle. Then I did the Central America trip, which obviously kept me still on it. Uh, but it was about, I guess, a year after we left that I did end up back in my mom's place for a few months. And it's like the biggest thing for me, dude, it's like every day in Honduras, regardless of like whether or not you get that much accomplished professionally. You did something because you, you did, had to. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like you, there's no running water or and there's a lot of times there's no running water. Every day there's no potable drinking water. So like you have to walk, you know, a mile or go get a giant jug of water and throw it on your shoulder and haul it back to your house. Um, you know, you have a tiny little fridge if you have a fridge at all. And so you have to go to a grocery store and wait in like a, a super long line and, you know, uh, be super careful about which route you're taking and at what time of day you're taking it so you don't get, you know, a gun stuck in your face. It's like every day you felt like you were surviving. So even at the end of the day, if you really hadn't accomplished anything, there was a sense of fulfillment you're, that you I, like I did survived and made. I lived today. You felt like you were you're living every baby. day. You come back to the U.S. and everything is just there. Like your survival and your very your your comfort is like a given. Yep. Right? And Honduras comfort just doesn't exist, right? You're always hot, you're always sweaty. There there may be electricity, there may be running water. It's like comfort is never given. If you can attain this sense of comfort, that's like a major accomplishment, right? Like if you can at the end of the day sit down and watch and like chill and watch a movie on Netflix, it is like the yeah. to taste is so much sweeter because like it's not a given. Right, and, and you might, like, you could lose power at any minute. Exactly. <laughs> and then you, you come back in the U.S., and you can just, like, plop down on your couch, eat whatever you want, have super fast Wi-Fi, you know, wake up in the morning and go to the gym without any, like, yep. robot speed bumps in the way. Like, your comfortable existence is a given. And so then now you get put in this position back in the U.S. where it's like, fuck. Now I f- you feel, like, obligated to achieve something. You feel obligated to, like like uh, meet some higher standard, whether or not it's like attaining a higher level of education or attaining some sort of financial gain or advancing your romantic relationship to a next level. It's, it's like you, you feel like in order to, to feel the self-actualization and sense of fulfillment, you feel like you have to like jump up to another level in some way. That's how yeah, I feel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I still, I'm still struggling with that because I'm looking back on it now, like I'm trying to decide what I want to do with my life. I'm like, fuck. Am I, am I taking this job because it's like actually what I want to do and it's going to make me happy or am I just doing that because I feel an obligation to like reach this next level of fulfillment? 
Am I staying in this relationship with this girl because like I actually love this girl and this is what I want for my life? Or because I feel like that's like my obligation as a member of this society? Yeah, so that, I mean, that, I, I, in some ways I totally agree. In other ways, I guess that just sort of introduces other questions to my mind. One is like, hey, are we achieving something by, you know, like, are you improving yourself or making yourself better just by existing? You know, in, in Honduras where it's like, hey, it was like, it was a bit of a struggle. I had to persevere just to like, you know, reach the comfort level of being able to watch Netflix at the end of the day and mm-hmm. go to sleep comfortably in my bed with a fan on me. Mm-hmm. You know, did you, is that a form of self-improvement? Were you improving yourself just by being able to do that? And, and if you I don't, don't uh, you know, it's like, what is self-improvement? Does that mean you're getting a new job? Does that mean you're, does it mean you're learning a new skill? Does it mean you're just learning more? Like, what, what is it? Why? So not only why do we do it, but what is it? Right. No, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I don't necessarily yeah. think like, you're saying that it is a sense of self-improvement. The only thing I could say it is, or where it would be a sense of self-improvement, is if you can take that experience of the discomfort and the challenge of living in a place like Honduras, and you can bring it back to wherever you set up shop for the next chapter of your life, and like um, really harness that sense of appreciation or the lessons learned, and allow it to like uh, um, elevate you to another level as a human being. I don't necessarily think I've done that. Um, so to, I guess the short answer to your question, like, are you, a, am I a better person or am I an improved person because of that? Like, not well, I necessarily. About, so I was thinking about this the other day. Um, someone was asking, like, you know, I had a bar of soap and it was on the, on the floor of the shower mm-hmm. in a certain spot where it doesn't get super wet because if it's on the, on the rack in the shower, it just gets soaked when the, when right. the faucet's on and it's like, a, right. it's just like gelatinous mess. Yeah. It's just a mess. So I like to put it in this one spot, but it's on the floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, a roommate was like, hey, do you want, like, I put your, your soap up, like, on the rack. And I was like, oh, like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin the soap. Right. And it was like, has my standard just been lowered? Like, should I get a box to put the soap in so it doesn't sit on the floor? Because her thing was like, well, don't you think it's going to be dirty sitting on the floor? And I was like, I was like, dirty. And I'm, like, thinking about, like, what do I think is dirty now? And like I, I think back to like all my showers that I had in Honduras that were showering out of a bucket, gross, like dude, I, yeah, gross. Showered out of a rusty bucket, dude. The bucket, um, that the oil tin that we showered out of that yeah. first time down there, that was like literally growing fucking amoebas like, and break like out with ugh. rashes. And I was like, nah, I don't think <sighs> that the soap will get uh, dirty if I'm using it every day and it sits like on a pretty dry spot on the floor of the shower. And I thought like, but that grosses you out. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I can get a box and like I'll just do that for you. Mm-hmm. Cause, so you're not like looking at that and like that's, mm-hmm. that's gross there's mm-hmm. soap on the floor and then I just wondered about like myself and I was like so did that did that either improve me as being like less worried about like germs like oh like I know I can survive and it's not gonna hurt me or did it just make me lower my standards mm-hmm. and so at the same time I, I think I'm very much more appreciative of ever like we're sitting at a picnic table it's, you know, I, we described the place a little bit. Alex probably has a picture of where we are on his phone. Maybe he'll be able to share that. Fishing and it's industrial like, park? I don't it's know like this pretty industrial. Um, oh, that's a badass sailboat that's But there's like a right pretty now. boat going by us, and the temperature's nice. And in the distance, I can see some, you know, like hard, hardwood foliage, trees, and like rooftops, and like... There's a lot of beauty here, and it's a nice day. And there's no concern whatsoever for our safety. Right I'm not, now. you know, I'm not worried about anything, and I'm, I'm really appreciative of this moment, being able to do this, and like, I'm not worried about anything. I'm not gonna get arrested. I'm not gonna get, 
you know, robbed. I'm not, you know, I feel great. And that's something that I wouldn't have even thought twice about before. Yeah. So, uh, you know, is that a lower standard or is that just being more appreciative and more in the present um, and having a, a, a different perspective? Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's something that I, I, I kind of think I'm a, I think I'm a much better person now than I was like when I was in college and like before I did Honduras, before I did, you know, whatever else I've, I've done. But, you know, whether it's, am I striving as much? Are my dreams as big? Probably. I don't know. Right. But I think I just appreciate the moment a lot more and in a different way. Does that make any sense? Totally, dude. I think uh, I'm glad. I'm, makes me very fucking happy to hear you say that because I don't necessarily know that I, I can concur with you. Um, I'm, I'm certainly a less psychologically stable individual than you, so I think that definitely <laughs> plays a role in it. But I will say for me, like, the biggest takeaway for me is, like, nothing rattles me anymore. Slap me in my head. Sam just slapped yeah, me in my it. fucking forehead. got a forehead. bug off his forehead. Um, Did that rattle you? <laughs> not, dude. I'm good. I'm rolling with it. <laughs> like, nothing rattles me anymore. For instance, like, right yeah. now, oh, I'm, totally. I'm unemployed and I am homeless. <laughs> And I have no plan for my life whatsoever. Like, literally the only thing I know that I want to do with my life is interview my friends for this quote-unquote podcast, right? Which I haven't even put online or I haven't even edited any of these fucking things. Who knows these things will ever <laughs> see the light of day, right? And they sit on a fucking SD card for At least you don't eternity. have cassette tapes you need to lug around <laughs> with yourself. Dude, so, but like, I'm totally cool with that. Because yeah. I have had the experience of living in a place where the vast majority of that population would kill to be in the position I am right now as a college-educated, white, homeless, unemployed man. Like, with U.S. citizenship. With U.S. citizenship. With a passport that can take me to literally any fucking place on the planet. Yeah. Like, the, my, this, what you could say is, like, my lowest point ever. <laughs> Could we say that? I don't know. No, I've been to lower points. How well points. do I know you, Alan? <laughs> I've been to lower, been to lower points. But, like, ostensibly what would be you would think would be, like, a low point from, like, the societal standards of, like, our peer group, right, mm -hmm. of people with master's, white people with master's degrees in the United States, right? This, like, people that we used to work with and some of our closest friends and romantic partners would this would be like their dream scenario. Yeah. This would be like the position I am right now would literally be a dream come true. This is amazing. Yep. And so while I don't dwell with that sentiment on like a second by second day to day basis, like that, that, that state of mind and that understanding isn't necessarily like constantly in my head. I do refer back to that on a daily basis when like I am worrying or I am becoming neurotic or I am feeling sorry for myself or whatever I can I do always refer back like like yeah. dude you may think like you're this in a bad, bad spot right now like you may think you're directionless and floating in the wind and I am very in a lot of ways <laughs> but like it's two sides of the same coin man look yep. at the other side of that coin like look appreciate how fortunate you are recognize how like <laughs> The vast majority of the global population would love to be in your position right now as an unemployed homeless man sitting in a fishing industrial park and <laughs> sitting in a parking lot in Portland, Maine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and you're also unemployed by choice. Right, exactly. When was the last time you applied for a job? 
uh, I mean, I guess last summer. DCI. Point, yeah, DCI. Yeah, so you got 100% of the jobs you just applied for. Yeah, I've never <laughs> been like, unemployed by, I've never been involuntarily unemployed, right. and I don't think I ever would be. Like, I could so always like, get like You a, know there's an easy way out. Totally, right. And there, and there almost always will be. Um, right, it's an like, incredibly privileged position to be yeah. in, dude. Incredibly privileged position to be in. Just the passport itself, dude, that's the biggest thing for me. The, 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 perhaps the greatest tragedy that I have unearthed in my life that is a constantly sense of like bewilderment to me as I go through life is this notion in the system we have on this planet where like because billions born, of people yeah. are born in a certain plot of dirt which is you know has been outlined by these arbitrary borders they are forced to stay in that tiny arbitrary arbitrarily outlined patch of dirt just because they happen to pop out of vagina in that geographical area it's so absurd. and us because we happen to pop out of vagina in this arbitrary geographical area we have the ability to then go, not only go wherever but we have access to opportunities that most people wouldn't even dream of yep it's fucking incredible it's dude. insane it's, it's inc- insane it's fucking insane it's and insane i was thinking about that when i was in when i went down to cuba um, I was just thinking about like if you're born like in, in one place and it's like you know I in high school in beginning of college like, I thought oh Cuba like the revolutionary like they are the antithesis of the United States in so many ways and like that's interesting and intriguing if you've ever like questioned stuff in your own country but then when you get there and you realize the restrictions on movement the restrictions in, in in how a different system works and it's like there's some stuff I appreciate about you know being born in this country and I think you know to a huge degree it's it's freedom and it's a freedom that a lot of people will unfortunately you know never really know or or have the chance to appreciate most people but it's the ability to travel it's the ability to move not only domestically between states so easily, but to so many countries. The purchasing power, uh, you know, the wages, being born into a global power is like, it's so incredibly advantageous to Americans, to a lot of Europeans. And, and then you can even be, you can be a global power, uh, but from a, a country like, like China, and you can't, you know, if you're born in a rural area, you may not even be able to move to, like, Shanghai. Mm-hmm. You know, you might not even be able to move around domestically in that country. Totally. Because there's a different sense of, of rights, of freedom, of, of ability to move. And, like, those restrictions, I think, are just absurd. It's, it's crazy how hard it is for a Honduran to come to the United States. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to, that we have, you know, these, these borders that, like in some sense like they, they don't or shouldn't even exist mm-hmm. I mean the border between Mexico and the US like literally as soon as we drew a border we separated families you know it's not like it's fucking separating insane. families is a new thing we've been doing that as soon as we started making making territories making yeah. borders it's it, it's absurd yeah personally I think it's the greatest injustice that exists on the planet the existence of what the fuck is this? Like, how antiquated of a fucking system is this? That we have these arbitrary lines in the dirt that totally separate, like, 
worlds, like create different worlds and states of existence, and it's so it so fucking I, blows my mind, man. I, so I was wrestling with this question, um, I guess, with a couple of my roommates, not too long ago, and you know where we started arriving was what. So what happens if you have? a border say between you know Cuba and the US and you know I'd, I'd love to use two other countries that were much more similar in size but share a border um, but but you have very different governing systems and there's free movement of people people can go wherever they, they want mm-hmm. they can decide they want to live somewhere mm-hmm. it, can they vote how do you if they can't vote can you know what right you know what rights do you just extend all all rights? Do they mm-hmm. if they enter your country, do they get like they're not a voting citizen or are they a voting citizen? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's wh- where I get confused around borders and and I think we should get rid of borders, but that's totally eliminating the fact that we all have different governing systems too, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And that's then how the... do you do something like national security? Does that right. exist? Should a government provide security? Right. If we don't have borders, right. and who are they protecting then? Right. Yeah. So yeah, the that it's easy for like open borders people, of which I self I consider myself is like just eliminate borders, right? And we have free movement. I can go to Mexico. Mexican can come here. It's right. just fucking let's just travel back and forth, and everyone can pick the spot they want to live, and then things will kind of take care of themselves, right? But as soon as you eliminate borders, you're opening up. You're just that's the very beginning of the fucking situation. Like you're opening up. Pandora's box at that point right. because it's not just eliminating the borders and creating a you know freedom of movement. It's now elimination of an entire way of existence from like a structural and governmental level. Yeah, yeah. I don't have the answer for you, but no, I think once you eliminate borders, you are. It's not just like we're you're eliminating deconstructing. Bor- you're state. deconstructing. You're deconstructing modern existence as we know it, civilization, civilization. as we know it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying like. When, when I was thinking about because you know obviously the US Mexico border is something that it's in the news all the time it's something I've been thinking about for years because so many students from Honduras that we were working with that Alex and I knew personally I mean Alex has a crazy story about Hector yeah I don't know if that's been told or if you want no, to I want to get Hector that's on the like, podcast though I mean as a young kid that we live with that lived in our neighborhood um, when we first were down in Honduras that we kind of just brought in and made sure he's going to school and kind of adopted him and let him sleep in our house and stuff and uh, you know we constantly stayed in touch with um, when we were back in the US and then ultimately got brought up by what's called a coyote a coyote a human trafficker essentially um, th- from Honduras through Central America up through Mexico very traditional story migrated illegally immigrated illegally across the border Ended up getting detained by border security. Put he in, actually was an unaccompanied minor. He actually was, yes, was an unaccompanied minor. Ended up in like one of these child prisons that have been in the news recently for a few months. Ended up getting resettled with a family member yeah, in Atlanta. Actually, ended up getting resettled literally five minutes away from my mom's house in, in suburban Atlanta. Yeah. Like so, fucking crazy full circle story. Dude lived a five minute walk away from their house in Honduras. Right. Ends up resettled at a house five minutes away, away from their mom's house in Atlanta, Insane Georgia. Insane shit. Insane shit. Um, that's whole other story. I want to get that kid in the podcast whenever I start like a... I want to start a Spanish version of this, but I should probably get the English one up first. Um, Estamos <laughs> ahorita. Um... But yeah, yeah. So yeah, this whole question. Yeah. It's, well, so it's been in the news. It's and it's something that you know, I like. I feel a, a connection. I, you know, I've had 
my own struggles with uh, with the border and trying to get uh, get Kata up here. Yeah. Um, Kata Sam's ex girlfriend from, from Honduras. Honduras. And that was, you know, like a long process. And ultimately, the reason, like, I'm not dating her is she couldn't come to the U.S. Dude, that's a fuck. We haven't even touched on that. That's a beautiful, like, emblematic example, emblematic of all of this, right? Like, this is a girl who you love, who you have an intimate, long-term relationship with. Like, why can't y'all be together? The only reason you're not together now is because the existence of these arbitrary borders. She can't come and be with the person that she loves because of this fucking arbitrary line in the sand. What the fuck is this? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what is she inherently like a criminal or like like a, a leech on society because she was born in this ge- uh, 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 several hundred or several thousand born, miles born to the south? Miles south? What the fuck, man? It's absurd. It's totally absurd, and it's like so. It's, that's just a topic that you know I've been thinking. I've been thinking a, it's lo- very close a lot. It's very close to home for you, obviously. You know. Yeah, I would it's say. not just a philosophical thing for you as it is for me. I guess I do have I mean, a personal... I mean, even for you, I would say, you know... You have students. So and, many students, so yeah. many people whose lives are directly impacted and affected by this. And and even for your sister from Morgan. I mean, she's dating a Canadian. That's right. a lot easier than, you know, someone from someone from Honduras, but... Still pursuing major logistical there's, challenges. There's still logistical tra- challenges. So it's like, he can't just come here and get a job. Right. You know, they can't do Nor that. can she in Canada. And she can in Canada or the EU. Yeah. Which he can, right? But she can because he's French-Canadian. French-Canadian, yeah. Canadian, yeah. Which is like, like, makes it even more ridiculous. Oh, because he's born in this part of Canada, yeah. he can now, like, get, he can get a right. job in the EU. Right. Like, what the fuck is going on right. here? Canadians have it dialed what in, is, man. What are we doing here? Canadians are the North American <laughs> Europeans. Dude, it's so fucking outrageous, man. It's fucking outrageous. And obviously, it's easy to sit, sit here and criticize the system. And it's always easy but to criticize a, any problem without presenting another solution. But, but that's a fascinating case, though. Like, looking at looking at uh, Antoine and Morgan. Antoine and like, Morgan's boyfriend. An, yeah, Antoine's Morgan's boyfriend from Montreal. And, you know, Morgan's obviously from Atlanta. And, you know... He's very well educated, master's degree, I think. Yep. Uh, that he got in like Scotland or something. Right. Whatever. And you know he can nice work university. in Europe. Morgan could volunteer there and had a a visa. I think she's on like kind of like a under stipend the table, kind of thing or something. Tourism visa, got paid in cash type situation. Right. You just all on. Yeah. So, so we're preventing like, highly educated humanitarian workers that are, from going. That are absolutely needed at like a refugee camp in Greece, and she can't be there. We're making it it's, as difficult it's so as possible difficult for, for her. her to be there. It's difficult for her to work, you know, like anywhere in Europe. She can't go to Belgium. She can't go. You know, it's like that's absurd. And these are, and that's even for uh, you know, a, a extremely well educated. She got like one. Plus master's, she's working on like a second master's degree, and or doctor is it a doctor? Yeah. In midwifery. Yeah. And and she can't like go to Europe and work. Dude, that like, entire situation, I think it's bizarre. It's so emblematic of the problem, right? So you've got a couple, one from Canada, one from the United States, both highly educated, going to work in Europe. One working in a place that could not be in more desperate need of people to help out but can't do so without a ton of bureaucratic involvement. It's virtually impossible to do so. Yep. And now you're not even, and, but then you've got the personal relationship of them being from two different countries, now in a third country. It's just like this clusterfuck of bureaucracy that doesn't need to exist. We had a similar issue in Honduras, right? Like we were essentially oh, yeah. humanitarian workers living in yeah. Honduras. We had to get paid in cash kind of under the table mm-hmm. with this stipend situation.
vacation. And then every three months, we got kicked out of the country and had to fly back to the United States, essentially using like all of our monthly salary to do so. Right. It's because you can't be in the country for more than three months at a time, even though we're there, like giving our blood, sweat, and tears to help yeah. the community. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, though. I always sort of appreciated those opportunities yeah, it was nice. to travel. It I was went down nice. to Costa Rica. I went down no, to, but that's when it used to... I went down to Panama. I went over to... Uh, well, yeah, I was you, supposed it, to go to Belize. I didn't quite make it there, but we worked something out. Well, it used to be you could just leave the country. Right? You could just hop across the board for Guatemala for 24 hours and come back. C, you always had to leave the C4. Not always. That was a new thing once we got down there. When they didn't really do the stamps correctly. Right. I guess probably <laughs> post coup, no one was really paying attention. Uh, but yeah, you couldn't. But then yeah. by the time we got down there, you had you couldn't go to a country. You had to go to a country that didn't border. Like what? That didn't border Honduras. Yeah, you had to get outside oh of God, what Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Ugh. And Honduras, obviously Honduras. But Ugh. No, that was nuts. Yeah, That's man, it's nuts. a fucking mess. And I don't. As Americans, we don't. You know, you don't really think about it because America's fucking awesome. It's like, why don't why don't we just like watch like uh, you should watch like a reality television show, like Desperate Housewives, and like get your dose of the U.S. That should be enough to get your passport stamped, right? right? Like, oh, you watch that? Okay, that's like that's worse than going. Yeah. That's worse than going to. Yeah, it's almost like we're like lulled into this state of ignorance in this country because things are. It's very easy to live here. Um, and it's so fucking big and there's such a wide variety of places to visit within our own borders, right? Yeah. There's really like, I was thinking that this, like I was planning this summer to do another international trip right after the school year ended. And then kind of down on me, I was like, fuck, I've never been like north of New York. Never been to Boston. I've never been to New England in any way. I've never, certainly never been to Maine where like my best friend is from. Like I'm going to do that instead. And there's still yeah. massive expanse of this country I've never seen. Yeah, so it's is, like a lot of people go throughout life with never even considering like what exists beyond uh, our borders. There's really no need to. And it's not a judgment, you know, on, on, on my part if, if you don't. But I think it is like super informative and super, um, I don't know, enriching and enriching part of the human experience to at least like ponder what life is like uh, in places outside of this country and especially in places that are you know less fortunate this, than this country. Yeah, this has been a big domestic travel year for me, and, and most of it through work. But right. like Phoenix, I mm-hmm. went to never never been out there, mm-hmm. you know, and travel around Sedona, whatever. Um, Colorado, mm-hmm. never been to Colorado. Going up to Columbus, Ohio, never mm-hmm. been there. And been out to St. Louis a bunch. I'm heading to Minneapolis, mm-hmm. like all these all these places. A lot kind of in the Midwest area mm-hmm. or West. Jackson, Wyoming, never never been out there. That was beautiful, um, and. and and it's amazing sort of the diversity mm-hmm. of and natural beauty for sure of the, the US and the diversity shocks me too because I mean now you see where I'm from mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not DC no. this is not Miami this is not it's Jackson, a whole different Wyoming. world dude it's a totally different world this is not Atlanta <laughs> um, for all my friends down in the ATL all of Alex's buddies we are not in Atlanta We're right not now. Atlanta right now, dude. Um, that's yeah. That's I mean that also is the beautiful part about the U.S. Right? It's like this, it's a cool this land of a thousand different worlds. It's a cool thing, but I, 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 there is some homogeneity or some right. There's a common uh, you know, thread. That there's runs a, there's a real, real thread that's that's pulled throughout this country, and I think it's I think it's important to get a different perspective. Totally. Um, so if people have the opportunity, I think Take they advantage should of them, always man. travel. 
Dude, okay, so let's let's wrap this thing up by kind of talking about the future and like your thoughts on the future. Let's start first like kind of connecting flying cars. Our, <laughs> our past experience. We will colonize so, Mars. So you have we talked we I will be a space cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> we left we left off in your personal timeline with kind of in the kind of timeline that's guided this podcast. Um with like your tra- transition back to the U.S. and you said like you had trouble getting a job at first. Eventually, you Man, went back to school and got your master's degree. And then now, though, you're working in well, you're working in like consulting and like a, a much more traditional, uh, I guess, more corporate environment than like you ever have before, right? Yeah. So talk about how you feel about what you're doing now professionally. Um, what your professional aspirations are for the future, and do you ever envision yourself like? dipping your toe back into like the like something wild and adventurous like what you were doing in Honduras and like is that passion still there is that desire still there or what, what do you what, what do you professionally at least like what do you envision for yourself yeah um, so yeah went back to grad school uh, studied policy and international affairs University of Maine um, got to do some cool trips while I was there I went to went to India for a wedding that was pretty sweet that was just a fun trip though and then I went to Kyrgyzstan to do some pretty interesting research. Um, and that was a, really a direction that, that I enjoyed a lot. And it was sort of investigating uh, potential for violent extremism or, or assessing uh, what potential projects could you do for countering violent extremism in Central Asia. And uh, what we were looking at was you know, migrants who had gone to Russia and there was an economic collapse in Russia and they had been sending remittances back to Kyrgyzstan. What was happening with the population in Kyrgyzstan? Was it becoming more vulnerable? Um, there's sort of an, an ethnic division in, in Kyrgyzstan and, and what, were there ethnic tensions? What, what, you know, what, what were some of the potential contributing factors mm-hmm. um, to the rise of violence uh, and violent extremists in Kyrgyzstan? And, and really the reason we had focused on that region was a lot of uh, Kyrgyz were popping up in Syria mm-hmm. associated with ISI. Okay. Um, and so that was a pretty fascinating project and process to design that research. And, and that's an area that I'm still very interested in. Um, and there's a lot of corollary between that and youth development. Uh, so a lot of the work that we were doing in, in Honduras and it sort of was sort of focused on uh, preventing youth from joining gangs or becoming involved in, in sort of the criminal criminal world criminal elements there um, and, and so there's you know there's a public health lens there's this research side of it there's there were all these things that were, were sort of coming together for me there that I'm, I'm still very interested in and, and would love to, to do something in that area in the future. Um, while I was in grad school, I, you know, as I said, I had trouble, you know, finding work immediately, that dream job that I thought was going to be handed to me, and I came back because I was killing it down there. But um, what I did end up finding was a, a job with this consulting company that does in their, in our words, Brimstone Consulting Group, we do, uh, we develop strategy, uh, we work on leadership development and team alignment, and we do those three things simultaneously uh, for organizations, and organizations in really in the most broad sense, everything from uh, the tiny NGO 
you know, a tiny NGO like Organization for Youth Empowerment, like Oye, um, we could work with them all the way up to, you know, a massive uh, government contractor or uh, automobile manufacturer. Mm. And, you know, I've sort of had the opportunity to work with all of those companies in between mm. organizations companies and organizations in, in between that, that full spectrum um, and that's been pretty fascinating to me because I love the opportunity to go in to an organization that I know nothing about learn about it and really what we focus on are the people and the process that they use to develop strategy. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that I will ever be the expert on any of these businesses, um, but what we provide is is insight, benchmarking, and we help people navigate each other mm -hmm. to produce the best outcome mm -hmm. um, and, and really deliver business results. So we help them you know, get the senior team in the room, help them work through interpersonal issues that they may have, um, give them opportunities and exercises to build as a team and give them the space to have a great dialogue and help them have that conversation and help them think about their strategy and their business. Um, a lot of it is like it, observing people and behaviors, mm -hmm. which I think is, is pretty fascinating. And it takes, I would say, and a high emotional intelligence level mm -hmm. um, to watch people and how they're reacting and when they're engaging and if they're not engaging why did they disengage mm -hmm. um, is there someone in the room who you know has something that they need to get out but for whatever reason they can't are they being shut down by somebody are you know are they just not being listened to if they're not being listened to is there a reason behind that damn should they be there like a counselor for businesses yeah so we're like a group like, therapy sessions like it's uh so some people it, it, it could be organizational development some people call it organizational psychology um i like that it's uh it's it's a pretty interesting field um and i wouldn't say i'm an academic in it mm -hmm. by any means now um but i've definitely been reading a lot more about organizations and org structure and process consulting and uh, dabbling in into psychology, a lot of it is also, you know, we'll work with uh, personality assessments. Mm -hmm. How does how do personalities uh, communicate? How do they get along with each other? What are their their different communication preferences? Um, so it's 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 definitely like brought me into this new field of psychology and, and social sciences a little bit. That's pretty new to me, and and I'd never thought about it before. Um, it's in some ways totally divergent from youth development mm -hmm. in other ways it's it's like the same shit right you know when we were working at Oye we were designing uh, we were trying to create the environment for uh, a disparate you know diverse group of kids to come together and you know foster new talents build a sense of community develop as leaders in their communities mm -hmm. and give something back that's very true I don't and kind I, of that I could correlate never really or parallel never really really occurred to me. And I don't think that what I'm doing with this company is really any different. Right. I'm just working with adults. Right. Who can have bigger egos. Right. And you know, are, we're talking about a lot of money. Right. We're not talking about paint brushes and microphones. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's 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 been interesting. My personal struggle with it 
has definitely been around the balance between social good and value creation. Right. Um, and what would you do? You know, where where do you draw the line? What what is the business's objective? Are they you know, doing this just to, to make money? Are they keeping the customers or this serving a, a social need mm-hmm. in mind? And I, you know, what I've been a little bit surprised to find is I think most businesses exist because there is a need or a want in the world. Right. Otherwise, no one's buying Dunkin' Donuts. Right. If you don't want coffee, you're not right. getting Dunkin' Donuts. Right, they're fulfilling a need in the marketplace. They're fulfilling, fulfilling a demand. demand. If they don't do that, if they don't put their customers first, if they don't think about that, if they don't try to think ahead and strategically which today means you know being more sustainable being you know uh providing more probably equal access thinking about quality thinking about price Mm -hmm. um if they're not doing those things which are probably better for for almost everyone Mm -hmm. then they're probably not going to survive as a company so there's this huge onus on on a lot of businesses today to you know not pollute the environments not do these things so that's you know, I feel good in that sense, mm-hmm. but it's not the same as doing right. work that, you know, is it, you have a, a, a direct and visceral sense that you're, you're doing something positive on a every day. Right. Um, if I focus on the individual people I'm working with, mm-hmm. that can be much more fulfilling. Right. Um, but so it's this thing where I've, I've learned a lot. I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's an itch in me to go and do something that's a little bit different mm-hmm. that I'll feel like I'm having a, a bit more of a, a direct impact and giving something of myself to the world and right. making it a better place. Right. Um, but I'm enjoying it a lot. So how okay, I want to guide you kind of in another direction because you that how you close it out there is exactly what I was kind of thinking of my next question. But you kind of answered already. How do you uh, envision? the convergence of this kind of itch as you described it, this desire to have more of an impact and it seems maybe even like more of a sense of a adventure kind of or oh, excitement. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess you could do that personally, right? In your own free time you could perhaps maybe get that get that that fix. But how do you okay, so how do you envision you converging that that desire to have an impact and more adventure in your life and then also working towards your personal life as now you're entering your thirties because it would be easier in terms of like personal fulfillment, in terms of like settling down, starting a family, to stay in the line of work you are now, it would seem like, right? Like you've got this job that's that pays well, you're comfortable with, you're learning and growing in this position. So what I see, for instance, for most of the people that I grew up with, their decision-making process would be stay where I am, continue to grow, because this is like an easier um, path to like, settle down and move into tr- to traditional adulthood knowing you however you're much more you're much more similar to me in my decision making process right we tend to make more extremist decisions take more chances what i would consider like more fearless um but also perhaps like more naive i don't know um so how do you just how do you envision that like at some point do you do want to settle down get married start a family if so how do you envision that going in line with like a profession, your professional decision making. Yeah. Um, so, geez, I might have to break this down into a couple parts. Do it. Um, first, I'll just hit the last one. Do I want to settle down, start a family, uh, get married, not get married, have a partner, right. whatever it is? Um, yeah. One day, I would love to have a wife and produce children. 
I don't Produce think children. that I am. Yeah, I'm just gonna <laughs> dozen. <laughs> um, I might have a couple wives to do that. Um, no, but yeah, no. One day I'd, I'd like to have a family. I don't see it in my cards in the near future. What's near future um, to you? Five, ten years? Five years? You know, I'd love to think after five years, maybe I'd be getting like really close. Yeah, I'm um, kind of the same way. But uh, you know, who knows? Um, could I? Would the logical path to being able to do that be to stay in my career now? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was another question. If if that is a, an right. end goal, is this the quickest way there or the the best route? Right. Um, in some ways, I think this is a potentially a nice. Uh, conservative and safe route for me to go. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's um, kind of what I was getting at. Financially secure. Totally. Um, I, you know, it's been going well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been getting, you know, increasingly more roles and responsibility within the organization. Um, a lot of opportunities like that. What I've also found is that's meant I travel a ton. Right. So, like dating is impossible right i can go on a date and then if it's a great date i might not see that person for like two or three weeks right and that's like i don't think you can kindle a lot of romantic relationships like that um so that you know maybe i'm sure i could find a balance somehow uh staying in the same company in the same similar role you know do I think that's the direction I want to go no I think I would get crazy bored okay um I I either see one uh, one or two or you know probably three different avenues that I can take one is um I'd like I'd, I'd be interested in sort of building my own practice within this company okay um where it would be a little bit more focus on focused on uh international organizations or cross-cultural work okay um and that would help me factor in some of the adventure right and traveling abroad and i'd love to work with international development organizations and whether that's their you know like global strategy or going out and doing sort of project teamwork or helping even with design and implementation philosophy for programs they already have running um i think some of that stuff could be pretty pretty fascinating and cool um, and I think there's some things that we do that are, are totally applicable to that. Uh, that would be one potential avenue. I think uh, another one would be, hey, let's blow it up completely, and I'm just going to go do something totally different. Um, and knowing me, that's like a path I've, I'm probably likely to choose. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll just be like, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, out. Like, uh, and then, and then I think the other one is, I'm I'm curious, and maybe it's a hey, I sort of want to do both of those things, and it's, can I get to a point where I can take like a sabbatical year? Gotcha. And go and do something like Peace Corps responding to beautiful rainbow. Oh shit! Can I, over the moon, it ends on the moon. Uh, Damn! I don't know if my iPhone could capture so quick, and Sam's in like a fucking great. Can I do? Uh, can I? You're do in a great uh, 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 monologue right now. Ooh, that might work though. But yeah, dude, we're looking over this hard. Once again, we're in like a industrial park. So <laughs> it's like great. This is like two and a half hours later. <laughs> it's like a great juxtaposition of, of kind of scenes here. Like behind us, we've got, I don't know, some sort of massive plow. plow. <laughs> I don't know, like building. air comp- compressor, like 
blaring. blaring away. But in front of us, man, we're staring out into this harbor with all these beautiful sailboats. The sun is setting. We've got this beautiful turquoise fishing boat coming across like so, I don't know, like almost like stereotypical of what you see in a harbor baby. in Maine. And then, like I said, the sun is setting. We've got a nice light blue sky, some, some nice gray, white cloud mix. And then this arching rainbow right over our head that's going from one side of the harbor to the other. And then the far right side of the rainbow literally ends on top of the moon. It's fucking incredible. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. Holy shit. And the sun's not coming down. It's kind of gleaning off the water. Wow. Seals flying Talk overhead. about appreciating like where you are. Appreciate the moment, Alex. Holy like you're getting shit. it. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Jesus, I'm like literally getting goosebumps. Holy <laughs> fuck, man. Wow. Uh, fuck. Go back to talk about consulting. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us so, more about consulting. <laughs> what you need to understand about the American corporation is it runs off of coffee and donuts. And if you want to get ahead. Um, Holy shit. Okay. Uh, no, but 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 it's it's the it's the hey, can I do both paths? Right. Can I do a sabbatical year? Can I go and do something like Peace Corps response? Right. Can I, and will that be either a bridge to something else? Will it, you know, just just scratch that itch and then I can go back? I don't know. Um, but that's kind of what I'm thinking about now is, hey, how do I take, you know, what I've what I've learned here from this experience and, and roll into something new and different and get a little bit more of that that thrill that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, do something with a little bit more risk, but I don't know. I'm trying. I am thinking. You know, hey, I am 30. Uh, you know, at some point, it might be cool to like own a house or like have like more assets than like the clothes I wear on my back, right? And a laptop <laughs> that Brimstone owns. Right. Um, but you know, on the other hand. I, I just, you know, I do. I just want to live and, like, live an unconventional life and Dude, enjoy okay, it. Good. Thank you. I, I kind of want to stop there. I think that's an end. I think that is an end. <laughs> I'm going to add a little addendum to it, though. <laughs> Living an unconventional life, that's what he says. So Sam is a very unique friend of mine. And I've repeated now a few times that, like, he doesn't live a traditional lifestyle. Um, <laughs> and I just don't want you to ever give up on that, dude. Like, you are such a shining source of hope for me <laughs> because I really don't have any other friends that are like that. And I know I'm like that. And it's not just for me personally. Like, I don't want you to, like, continue to think this way so I can, like, feel like I'm not, like, a total outcast <laughs> from society. I really do genuinely feel in my heart of hearts that, like, there's a lot of value in living like that. And that's, like, it really elevates your human experience and expands your human experience to maintain that open mindset, even if you do end up staying with Brimstone for the next decade, right? At least maintain the mindset that like, hey, it is an option for me to just take a sabbatical year and go join Peace Corps. Like that is an option. And I think that is, that's another lesson that Honduras did teach me was that like, dude, you can drop everything and do something crazy and you're gonna make it. Like you're gonna survive, you're gonna come back in one piece and things are gonna be okay. You're gonna figure it out. And it may seem scary, but I promise you that fear will only go away by just putting one foot in front of the other and continue to go day by day and just solving each problem as it comes. So not only to you looking you here in your eyes, saying this to you, like, please maintain that life, that, that, <laughs> that mindset to every, anyone who's listening out there, like, 
if you're if you do have a conventional mindset like challenge yourself to open it up a little bit challenge yourself to really at least engage in the thought process of exploring what scares you and if you already are doing that continue to maintain the mindset of of at least mentally diving into your fears or taking risk I don't know man I really feel like I don't know much about life and a lot of the shit I say here on this podcast is me just shooting the shit and spitballing what's coming in my mind but I really feel like in my 30 rotations around the sun that I that that I uh, that I have had, that like pushing the limit of what you think is possible and what you think is scary is like a really good way to guide your day-to-day existence. So, I don't know, I really hope you continue to think that way at the very least, at least continue to entertain that thought. And then I also wanna close out by saying, dude, like I cannot be, I'm super appreciative of all my friends. And I feel, I mean, so incredibly unfortunate to have the people in my life that I do and they all hold a very special part and you do hold this incredibly special place in my heart man as like not only a good friend but at this point especially because of your relationship with my sister like your brother you're a member of the fucking family and I could not I feel so fucking lucky to have you in my life and I think at sometimes I haven't always been the greatest friend um, and I, I, don't, I feel incredibly fortunate that you're still here with me, right? <laughs> that I've had the chance to come up with you on your 30th birthday to meet your family. And I don't know, man, I just look forward to continue to having you in my life in whatever capacity that is, even if, you know, we're, we're, we're not living together, or we're not in each other's physical presence on a day-to-day basis, man. Um, I don't know, I look forward to fucking uh, you being at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it again when we're 75. <laughs> yeah, brother. Uh, really, man, I love you to death. And, like, seriously, thank you for being who you are because you're, you're fucking inspiration to me. You keep my, like, fire burning. Seriously. So thank you, dude. And thank you for doing this interview. Well, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me here, man. All right, bro. This has been a blast. Love I didn't you, know man. what it was going to be like. I was <laughs>